Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you this week, week number four, social distancing podcast. Still continuing on, trying to talk sports the best we can in this situation. We talked some Giants football last week. This week we're talking Jets football, talking gangrene, arguably the inspiration for this podcast name. I'll be joined today by Brian Costello. He covers the Jets for the New York Post. We'll talk about his take on the Jet offseason, look ahead to what the Jets could do in the draft. I also going to be doing a Jet fan forum today. I'm going to be joined by a trio of Jet fans. Familiar names to loyal podcast listeners. The unofficial co-host of the podcast, Bill Schneiderhan, is on the line today. Martino Puccio is up. And the great Rocky DePaola here as well. We will all be talking Jets, doing a deep dive into some of the issues surrounding this team. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show for our pop cultures, half of the portion this week. And again, one of the most popular guests on the podcast, John Stanko. He's here this week. We'll talk some Westworld. We'll talk McMillions. Find out what John's been up to in the social distancing era, what he's streaming, give you some recommendations and stuff to check out. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip, where we're going to take a look at the news that came out of the weekend that President Trump talked to basically every commissioner in sports in terms of trying to get stuff started again. That's coming up, a timeline for that, really, what he thinks will happen. We'll break that down right after listening to what he had to say about this conference call at his press briefing on Saturday as part of his coronavirus task force daily briefings. I just spoke with the uh, commissioners, leaders of, I would say, virtually all of the sports leagues. They want to get back. They got to get back. They can't do this. Their sports weren't designed for it. The whole concept of our nation wasn't designed for it. We're going to have to get back. We want to get back soon, very soon. All right, we are back. You just heard President Trump's discussion of the conference call he had on Saturday. And when I saw this on Twitter on Saturday afternoon, I was immediately intrigued because it's not every day the President of the United States basically asking every single sports leader to be on one call. And at that point, you're thinking a couple of different things could be happening here. You're thinking, are we discussing, okay, we can't do sports for this long a time? We talk about a timetable when stuff wants to return. All this good stuff, and we haven't gotten full details on this, but we have had some stuff leak out, mostly to ESPN's Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojciechowski. Basically, President Trump believes the NFL season will start on time. He also believes that we will have fans in the buildings again for sports in August and September. He also, and again, this is all taken with a grain of salt because we still don't know enough yet about this virus. We don't have enough testing this whole thing, nobody knows a thing. Just within a couple hours of President Trump's announcement, we heard the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, come out and say, you know what, I don't think we're going to be playing NFL games in the state of California this year, with or without fans. At this point, President Trump could be right. Governor Newsom could be right. Somebody in the middle could be right. We just don't know enough things. And as I said last week on the podcast, I'll keep saying this, we are going to get sports back. We don't know when we are yet. 
It's coming. Just like the mall will be open eventually. The movies will be open eventually. The restaurants will be open. People will get to do things eventually. But right now, saying when that will happen is a pointless exercise because we are dealing with something we have never seen before. There is no known vaccine to this virus. There is no proven treatment for this virus. As much as the president has to go on there and tell you that hydroxychloroquine and ZPAC is the answer to the problems of the world. You don't, you don't doesn't know. He's not a doctor. And there are very few people I actually listen to in this thing. Listen to the doctors and the scientists. They are the ones whose opinions matter because they have the best grasp on this thing of anybody here. Once they say, you know what, it's okay to gather in groups of more than 10 people and we can do things like that, then maybe we'll get some sports. But acting like the, just because the president said that we're going to have sports in September. We're going to have sports in September. We don't know that yet. I think it's nice that he's optimistic. It's cool that he has his belief. But this is also the same president who said that the country should, will be grandly reopened on Easter and have churches full of pews of people getting ready to celebrate Easter Mass. And that did not happen. We don't know enough information yet. I mean, there are sports trying to figure out ways to get back. We've heard about the NBA discussing, you know, this whole idea of having a satellite city where you bring everybody to one location to finish it out the 2019-2020 year. NHL discussed something similar. Golf is putting a calendar together. They're talking about playing the Masters in November, the PGA in August, the U.S. Open, I believe, in September. Like, all these things are great, but they don't mean anything right now. Dates could be changed. For all we know, we could be up in two months and be getting ready to gear up for baseball season. We could be gearing up for baseball season in September. Again, fantastic that he's enthusiastic. I don't believe him yet. I just can't. We uh, do not know yet if anybody can play sports anywhere. I mean, we haven't seen one professional league actually start up a season again, really, around the globe. The closest we have is the KBO, the Korean Baseball League, and they're supposed to start on April 21st. That hasn't happened yet. That could get pushed back for all we know. Chinese Basketball Association was trying to get everything back together. They shut down quickly. They pushed back another month from what they were trying to do. We just don't have enough information. It's a fact. So, again, interesting. But we didn't literally learn anything here. We haven't gotten enough information about this thing to set up a strategy. Because let's say, for instance, the NBA does try to do the satellite city thing. It's not just the NBA players and the t- coaches there. It's arena workers. It's the hotel staff they're with. Somebody has to feed these players. If just one person in that little ecosystem gets coronavirus, the entire operation is over. Simple as that. There are too many logistical hurdles right now. We don't have enough information. You basically need a lot of things to happen, and we'll get information down the line, but we don't have enough to do sports yet. We just don't. We will eventually, but right now we don't. Up next, we're going to shift to the Jets. We'll talk to Brian Costello from the New York Post right after this. From the 20-yard line of the Redskins, Darnold moving to his left. Now he throws to the end zone. Touchdown, Daniel Brown. So the Jets score on their opening drive and touchdown for the fourth consecutive game. All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. 
We're talking some Jets football today. I'm happy to be joined by the guy who covers the Jets for the New York Post, also calls into Joe and Evan on WFAN. Brian Costello is on the line today. Brian, welcome. How are you? Hey, Mike. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty good, hanging in there. As a Jet fan, I've been very interested in what's going on with this offseason. So what do you make of Joe Douglas's approach to his first offseason in charge? Well, I think he's been cautious, uh, judicious. You know, he hasn't thrown a lot of money around, which I think is smart. Uh, you know, we've seen past years the Jets have won March, but it hasn't done much for them in the fall. Um, you know, signing these big free agents usually doesn't win. Now the trick is he's got to draft well. You know, it's just one thing to say you're you're going to be prudent financially and you're not going to chase free agents. Um, you know, and build through the draft as it all counts. And every GM I've covered has kind of said that. The key is drafting, and we're going to find out, um, you know, here over time. We're not going to know in two weeks how he does, or, you know, everyone thinks they do, but it'll take some time to know just how good a drafter he is, and that's going to be the key to this whole thing. Yeah, it will indeed. He also made a big priority of trying to fix the offensive line. He's brought a bunch of guys in, so how do you think the yeah. line looks now compared to where it was the, at the end of the season? Yeah, I mean, I can't say it's much better because I don't think these guys are, you know, great players. I think Connor McGovern is an NFL starter. Uh, I'm not sure about George Fan. I'm not sure about Greg Van Roten. I like without it last year. Um, but I think he's taking a volume approach, you know, just bringing in as many guys as he can. And then they'll sort it out in training camp who the, start, who the best five are. I also think there's someone else coming in the draft. You know, I, I think at number 11, they probably take the tackle. That's the most likely scenario. Um, so, you know, it's not a complete picture yet, <clears throat> but I think, you know, he couldn't, he wasn't going to go out and sign Jack Conklin. I think that was a lot of smoke people were throwing out there because if you sign Jack Conklin, then you're pretty much not signing a lot of other guys. And he, he did volume. He signed 14 guys in total, including people he brought back. So he had to, uh, you know, $50 million in cap space sounds like a lot, but it's not when you look at his Jets roster and saw how many of their own free agents they had and how many holes they had to fill. So he, he had to kind of spread that money around instead of going out and buying, you know, one Kobe stake. He, he bought a lot of ground shuck for the offensive line, and now they're going to see how it sorts itself out and, and how it works out. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge in front of them right now is chemistry with the offensive line and possibly not having OTAs or the spring program. Um, it's going to be a challenge for them to get all these new parts working together. And I think you saw last year how important chemistry is on chemistry is for an offensive line where. You know, they thought, I'll oh, plug Ryan Khalil in. It didn't really work. Um, and the chemistry was actually better later in the year with lesser players. Yeah, it definitely seemed to be that way. I noticed you met, you talk about how, like, he's bringing in, like, a bunch of guys all over the roster, sort of like the quantity over quality approach because this team has had no depth for years. And now they feel like they're a deeper team. I don't know how much better they are, but, like, how do you think that changed the approach with health? And I feel like last year, whenever that somebody got hurt, they were, like, struggling for a while to find a replacement. Yeah, in a way... You know, I would put it as they had no middle class. You know, they, they just had some good players. Like, right, they, Jamal Adams is a good player. CJ Mosley is a good player. Le'Veon Bell is a good player. I think Sam Donald is going to be a good player and was on his way there. Um, you know, it's that kind of that next level of player. They don't have many guys there. Uh, it was a big drop-off from the starters to what was behind them. And I, I had written last August that I thought injuries were the biggest problem they were going to have because they had no depth and if they had injuries they were in trouble and that's what happened you know and I think people say oh injuries are an excuse it's really not an excuse it was real you know especially 
when you have a lot of injuries at one position or two positions, like they have an inside linebacker and they have the offensive line, uh, hard to overcome that. So, you know, I think that's what Joe Douglas is trying to do now is kind of, I would call it the middle class. You know, these guys are, these guys can be starters and some of them are quality starters, but, you know, you're not signing pro bowlers. Uh, and that, those, those guys are hard to find a free agency, honestly, anyway. But he's trying to build up that middle class so that the Jets have some depth. Yeah, he's definitely done that. One of his more interesting decisions he's made was to let Robbie Anderson walk because he was developing a relationship with Sam Darnold at the end of last year. They were getting in sync together, but they let him go to Carolina for the two-year $20 million deal, which is basically 1-12, which seems like a price he didn't want to meet. Yep. Were you surprised that they chose to let Robbie walk? I was surprised when I saw what he got that they let him walk. You know, I, I thought there was a good chance Robbie Anderson was going to be gone because I thought somebody might throw a lot of money at Robbie. Um, you know, I thought somebody might could pay him fourteen million a year, fifteen million a year. Um, and in that case, I, I was like, oh, okay, it makes sense for the Jets to go. I was surprised that like it's basically a one year, twelve million dollar deal. I thought the Jets could do that uh, and try to keep Robbie, but you know, they decided to move on and um, you know, not pay that money uh, for whatever reason. So um, you know, now we'll see if Rashad Perriman can kind of fill that role that Robbie had. I think Perriman is. You know, as fast as a deep threat like Robbie, I don't think he is as good a route runner as Robbie is. Robbie, he came a better receiver last year. You know, the, the, if you watch him in the second half of the season, a lot of the crossing routes he was running, he was making contested catches. I'm curious to see if Perriman can be uh, as good as Robbie Anderson, you know, what the drop-off is there. Yeah, I mean, they have to get more help for, for Sam Darnold, who, I mean, they've worked on the line. They still have to get receiving help. They need a left tackle. Do you think they've done enough to help him develop into a good NFL quarterback? Do you think that they've been lacking over the last couple of years? They haven't done enough. You know, I mean, because like you said, there's still a lot of holes on this roster. So they've got to do more. Um, you know, it's hard to, to, to do it in one off. So, you know, I think they tried last year. Bringing in Le'Veon, I thought that was kind of misguided. You know, a running back, even though he's a talented player, that's, you know, running backs don't really do that. I thought McCagnan didn't do a good job addressing offensive line last year. He really just traded for Osemele, which ended up being big. Um, I thought he should have done more there. You know, uh, they were hurt last year by Chris Herndon being injured for all, the whole season. I think the offense would have looked different with him in there. Uh, so, you know, Joe Douglas still has work to do. He'd be the first one to tell you. So I work to do to build around Sam Darnold, but it seems like that's the plan now and that's the priority. So that's a good thing. Yeah. You mentioned Le'Veon Bell too, who like, I think it's been clear like through the, through the grapevine that, uh, Adam Gates did not really want him here last year. And obviously Bell yeah. did not look at the same player last year. They think they can get out of his money after this year. Is there any scenario you can see where Le'Veon Bell is a jet beyond this season? Hard to see that. I suppose if he goes out and has an amazing season this year, and you know, somehow rushes for fourteen hundred yards or something like that, they'd, they'd be hard pressed to get let him go after that. But yeah, I think the most likely scenario is he's gone after this year. Um, and, you know, they gave a lot of money to a running back, and look around at what running back this for Asian market running back. You know, Todd Gurley gets cut. He's a lot, you know, younger than Ben Le'Veon, and coming in two years ago, he was very productive. So. Um, you know, David Johnson getting traded. Uh, it, it's it's a tough world right now for running backs in the NFL. So I think Le'Veon will probably be gone after this season. 
Yeah, I would agree. I'll go to the defense for a little bit. Obviously, the Jets were not as active on the defensive side for injuries. They did bring back a couple of guys. They brought in the linebacker from the Ravens. How do you think they did on the defensive front free agency? I don't think they did very much defensively. You know, um, like you said, they, they they brought in a few guys here. This year is probably the biggest one that they brought in the cornerback. Uh, you know, I would like to have seen them. Uh, do more at cornerback. I thought there were some better options out there and that weren't that expensive. Uh, they seem to just go on the cheap there. And I don't know if they're just counting on Greg Williams playing cover two again this year and hiding the cornerbacks. Maybe they, I think they're going to have to draft one at some point. I don't think they get a starter in this draft, you know, it, it, depending on where they pick the guy. Um, so I, I would like to see this on the corner. You know, they need an edge rusher desperately. This is a tough market. It's tough to find a, a good edge rusher in free agency. They usually don't hit free agency. <clears throat> so I can't kill him there, but, you know, a guy like Marcus Golden is still out there. He, he, he's got the price has to be down for him, you know, like they, they bring him in. I think they just need to do something at edge rusher there, and they're probably not going to be able to, to get an impact one in the draft because there's really only one great pass rusher in this draft in Chase Young, and he's not going to be on the Jets. So, to me, um, I would like to see them do a little bit more on the defense in free agency. Yeah, I know that Douglas has a background at the Ravens and the Eagles, where like a lot of these teams that like, they don't the Cecil ones don't usually go throwing big money around the first wave of free agency and yeah. making big yeah. moves in the second tier. Do you think the Jets have another wave of moves in there? Or do you think they've spent pretty much what they're going to spend in the offseason? Yeah, I, I think they're going to do some stuff after the draft. I think they're kind of on pause right now. Um, so, you know, I think they'll see what they address in the draft and then fill the whole offing. This is kind of going to be a different year, I think, where I think there'll be a lot more post-draft moves than usual because there's going to be no, it looks like there'll be no OTAs. So, you know, it's not that important to have your team all set right now. Like, they're, they're not prepping to go into the building in two weeks. So, I, I think so. they'll see, you'll see a lot more activity out there. Uh, that being said, they're probably down around it's hard to know for sure, but they're probably around ten million dollars in cap space right now. They'll get eleven million more when Tremaine Johnson comes off the books in June. You'll need about nine of that for draft picks. So, uh, and and teams like to keep a certain amount of money. That, you know, Bill Parcells used to call it the rainy day fund for things that come up during the season. Guys go on have to find other guys. Uh, maybe a trade presents itself where you need some cap space. So uh, I don't think they'll be making a ton more moves, but they probably have, you know, maybe three or four after the draft. They'll probably fill some holes. Yeah, are you surprised they've still held on to guys like Avery Williamson and Brian Winters who we thought were clear cap casualties at the beginning of the offseason? Yeah, both those guys, I think, had a little complicated factor that we didn't really look at. They both had injuries last year, you know, and it's hard. Guys have to be healthy to cut them or you cut them with an injury designation. You have to do an injury settlement, pay them. So I think... Uh, you know, that was a factor with both of them that people didn't really look at. Um, you know, I still think Winters is probably competing for his job and maybe Avery too, but I think Winters will go into training camp with him, uh, fighting for one of these games faster than Rutan and Alex Lewis, um, you know, competing as well. And then, you know, I could see though they'll probably they might they could cut him before the season or or ask him to take a pay cut if he doesn't win the job. They're not going to pay him $7 million for the backup. So I'm not sure Winters is here when we go to line still. Uh, Avery, I think, is probably going to be here. Uh, but he could be in a similar situation if they decide that Hewitt is 
doing well. You know, they might move on from Avery. Um, but to me, those guys still aren't, you know, 100% secure. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I feel like right now the logical place to go is the draft because the draft's coming up in a couple of weeks. I feel like most yep. mocks have seen the Jets kind of going left tackle, wide receiver, first two picks, kind of filling out the rest of their needs after that. Do you think that's the game plan for Joe Douglas? you think he has a different strategy in mind? Uh, I think, mean, you know, it's going to be the best player that's there. And to me, those four tackles are highly rated. You know, I, so I think if one of those four tackles, that's probably the direction they're going to go. They definitely need a tackle, and those guys are all different thinkers that can improve your team immediately and be an upgrade over what they have. If those four tackles are all gone, then I think you're in a situation with, you know, do they try to trade back? Um, I think if they trade it down, you know, maybe then they take an edge rusher or a cornerback or a wide receiver down. If they stay at number 11 and tackles are gone, then you're faced with you know, Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb or one of those wide receivers or possibly a cornerback like maybe CJ Henderson from Florida. Um, you know, and there's always surprises. Like, we always think we know how this is going to go, but someone could fly out of that. You know, what if, what if Jeff Akuda slides down? Never had him as a number three pick, right? Remember the McCadden draft. Uh, everyone had Jamal Adams going to the top three, and then he's there at six for them. You know, everyone had Leonard Williams going top three and six. So maybe someone slides to 11 that we're not anticipating slides down there and they can take one. So you never know. I don't think Joe Douglas is going to go into this saying, I'm definitely doing this or definitely doing that. I think it's be flexible, um, you know, and He'll be he'll be trying to fill as many needs as he can to draft. I don't think he's going to overdraft people. Yeah, it makes sense. I want to wrap up a little bit on the head coach Adam Gase because last year, I mean, he got under the skin of Jet fans pretty early. But you point out on the on WFN and your columns many times they were never going to fire him. They were not going to pay three head coaches and yeah. two general managers in one year. Considering the fact that now the playoffs are expanding this year to seven teams, the Patriots got weaker because Tom Brady's out of the division. Like. Do you think this is a make-or-break year for Adam Gase to show the, the ownership that he needs to make a playoff run, at least get them pretty close? I think every year it's a make-or-break now. You know, I mean, look across town. Ben McAdoo had the Giants in the playoffs in year one, and then it was fired after year two. Pat Chandler plays again, and he's gone up in two years. So it's not in cost, um, you know, in, in the NFL. There's not much pace. Uh, I do think ownership likes Adam Gates a lot, a lot more than the fan base does. Um, you know, they see a lot more of him and, and his leadership, and I think they they like that. I do think when looking at last year, you know, at one and seven when they lost to the Dolphins in Miami, it looked like things could fall apart for that team, and they didn't. And they went six and two in the second half. Yes, they played some weak teams, but they were weak teams, so. They can't be punished for that. But he, I thought he did a good job of keeping things together last year. To me, the biggest thing for Adam in year two is Sam Donald. Like, Sam Donald has to show proof. That's where Adam has to make the biggest move. Uh, I think, you know, he was blowing here to help them along and help the offense. The offense was 32nd last year. They had a lot of injuries, like we talked about before, but they still should have been better than 32nd. So he's got to make this offense jump. And I think the biggest thing is Sam. And so, if he does that, you know, I think he's back for year three. Even if they don't, this is not a playoff team. Like I look at it right now. I think anyone expecting it to be a playoff team, you're probably kidding yourself. Um, so, is there a certain number that he has to win games? You know, I never really think that. I think it's how the season goes um, and how it looks. Uh, you know, and I think ownership 
doesn't have endless patience, but I do think they probably have more than the fan base right now. Yeah, and you brought up him getting Sam Darnold better. Do you think, like, if Sam Darnold is healthy this year, do you think by the end of this year we, we should have, an, we'll have a better understanding of like, what kind of quarterback he will be going forward? Because I feel like the Jets sort of squandered this window to win with a rookie quarterback on a cheap contract. Yeah, no, yeah, I think we should know, you know, what he is going to be injury. Uh, last year was obviously very weird because of the illness. Uh, that kind of everything else. So, you know, as long as he's healthy and he plays 16 games, I think we should have a better idea of what he is. But like we talked about before, maybe they need to add some things around him. Uh, so hopefully, you know, they can do that and this offense gets a little bit better to, around him so they can see what he can do. I also think, you know, Sam needs to elevate the It's now year three time to see if he can do that. And, you know, the best quarterback sometimes do without the, the best players around them. You know, for years we've looked at Tom Brady with the Patriots. You know, yes, you know, he had Julian Edelman and Gronkowski, but some of the other guys that they played with, he's played with have been nobodies that he's made better. So uh, I think, you know, you got to see Sam kind of raise people's game up uh, this year. And, you know, the the contract thing, yeah, like, yes, the Jets have had him on the cheap for the last few years and haven't taken advantage of it, but, you know, I don't think that's going to change uh, this year. I think people have to get, kind of get over that. <laughs> they didn't, there was not a Russell Wilson situation. He had a really good team around him when he came in, and the Jets have struggled to build around him. So uh, I think you got to deal with, you know, that window's going to probably close, but the salary cap is exploding, and you know, there's a new TV contract coming. So I don't think that's quite as big a deal as people make it out to be uh, anymore. All right, there you have it. That was Brian Costello from the New York Post talking Jets football. Before I let you go, Brian, can you tell people how to follow you on social media and keep up with some of your stuff that you're writing in the Post? Yeah, you can follow me at Brian Cos, B-R-I-N-C-O-Z, and you know, check out NYPost.com. Uh, trying to get through this uh you know, the, the quarantine period with as much draft coverage as we can. So, yeah, you can check it out there. We're trying to have as many Jets as we can for you before the draft, and then uh, we'll have to figure things out after the draft as well. All right, Brian, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, and there you have it. That was Brian Costello from the New York Post talking Jets football. A lot of interesting stuff there from Brian on the Jets. Up next, we will go from the reporter's perspective to the fans' perspective, the Jets fan forum. Coming up next, right after this. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. This is the Fan Forum. All right, we've opened up the phone lines here. We're back in the Fan Forum. This time we're bringing in the Jet fans to talk on the podcast this week. First up, the unofficial co-host of the podcast. First time on the social distancing era, Will Schneiderhand. Will, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I hope everyone else is well. Yeah, we're all staying six feet apart, more than six feet away from each other. I think we're all okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next up, somebody we heard from most recently doing Curb Your Enthusiasm coverage. You got our buddy Joe D to watch the show. Martino Puccio is here. Martino, welcome. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm actually in a good mood since Joe D binged all 10 seasons of Curb. I want to give credit to ourselves, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we accepted that idea to him to actually watch Curb. I got him to start watching Always Sunny in Philadelphia, so that's also good. <laughs> all right. So Martino's passing on TV tips. I'll bring in the third member of the fan forum. We haven't heard from him in a little bit since he did the NFL picks back in week 11. 
the great Rocky DePal is on the line with us too. Rocky, how are you? I'm doing good, Mike. I'm thankful that uh, Breaking Bad and Classic World Series games are getting me through this quarantine period. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, <Okay>, Rock. <laughs> Everybody's got their own thing. Breaking Bad works for Rock, so <laughs> let's get into why we're here. We're talking a little New York Jet football, and like I did last week, the Giant fan forum. I'll start the Jet one this way. I will go to each of you for your opinion on this. I'll start with you, Mister Martino. Are the Jets going in the right direction or the wrong direction? Um. I kind of always have this flow chart in my head that if the Jets like make a good move, the next part of the flow chart is who is your head coach. And then below that, if it's Adam Gates, then the answer is the wrong direction. And then if it's not Adam Gates, then he might be in the right direction. But with the Jets, they do have Adam Gates. So I don't think to an extent they're in the right direction because if they even do have a good season, then Adam Gase comes back. And the whole goal is to win a Super Bowl, and you just don't see the Jets winning one with Adam Gase. That's my that's my whole issue. And that's kind of the right direction should always be moving towards winning a Super Bowl. And when you have him, you're not going to win one, so you're not going in the right direction, in my opinion. All right, Will, up to, how about you? Right direction, wrong direction? Yeah, I, I kind of just air like with so like what Martino just said, like as long as he's here, you're probably not going to win. You know, you're not. There's no long term winning with Adam Gase, at least <laughs> as as far as we've seen. So I just kind of like, you know, I just kind of think like he's not going to be around like he, when this team really, you know, like really turns it around. I can't imagine that Douglas even keeps around past this year because um, there's no way they're winning like ten to twelve football games this season. But I do think like on paper. I like the fact that you're bringing guys in that you're not gonna. You don't have to pay long term. There's no clog in the salary cap. So I mean, from that aspect, when you're bringing talent into the room, that's not gonna. You're not paying too much for, and you're not like, handcuffing yourself. I think uh, from a roster standpoint, they're definitely going in the right direction. All right, Rock. Right direction, wrong direction. I'm gonna piggyback off what Will said. I'm gonna say I like the moves that uh, Douglas has made. So. You know, on paper, the team kind of looks like they're heading into the right direction. But from a coaching aspect, I feel like they're going in the wrong direction. Because, Mike, I mentioned this to you on your show back in November. I said coaching's all about making the most of what you had. And look what John Gruden did. Look what Mike Tomlin did. And look what Frank Reich did. All those guys had least amount of talent to work with. But yet they were able to have some success. Gase, on the other hand, he's, he quits on his team. He doesn't put the Jets in, you know, fortuitous or good situations. I mean, look what happened with Luke Falk. That was an utter disaster. And then he doesn't utilize Le'Veon Bell. You have a top five running back in your backfield and you don't know how to utilize him? Come on, man. Yeah, I'm going to stay. I'm in the, I'm kind of in the middle here because like, I'm theory, I like what they're doing, but like, I talked to Brian Costello earlier in the podcast. They said like, yeah, they've added bodies. They've filled the middle class out, but none of these guys really knocked your sauce off. Like the offensive line, particularly like, it's better. Don't know how much better it's going to be, and that's a big problem. I feel like it's going to – my whole thing on the offensive line is, like, they were – it has to be better. I mean, I – it was so terrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would hope that literally anybody else, other than what they had, is better. I, that offensive line was just putrid. You know, like, I feel like when I'm saying it's going in the right direction, it's literally like the bar was so low, <laughs> you know? like. It, there was really only way, only one way, but up. It was so low, so bad. 
once again, fitting off like uh, what Will said, I mean, the offensive line was just horrendous, absolutely dreadful. And Darnold didn't always have a clean pocket majority of the time. But I think with the moves that Douglas made, it's going in the right direction. And fingers crossed that it just pans out well and it doesn't turn out to be like the Giants did a few years ago. Yeah, let's talk about Joe Douglas for me because, I mean, like, he's been taking the opposite approach what Mike McCagney did. McCagney was, like, throwing the big bucks around. We saw last year through. 70 million guaranteed at Le'Veon Bell and CJ Mosley, and that got them a whole lot of nothing, pretty much. This year, he basically has not given out a ton of guaranteed money. He signed a bunch of guys to one year deals, just fortify the depth. I'll go to, I'll go to you, Rocky. How do you feel about the Joe Douglas first full offseason of his own accord there? I think uh, if I had to give him a grade, I'd give him a B because, you know, like you mentioned, he's bringing guys like a one year contract, so it's pretty much low risk, high reward kind of thing. And I also liked how he brought in, uh, he brought back Jordan Jenkins and uh, Brian Poole because I felt like those were two two guys that they had to bring back. And even though um, I'm a bit disappointed, I will admit I'm a little disappointed that he wasn't able to bring back Robbie Anderson because seeing what he got with the Carolina Panthers, I felt like there was a strong possibility that they were able to resign him to a long-term deal. But other than that, I would say I'd give uh, Douglas a B this offseason. I think he's a solid, I want to say, I'd, I'd say B minus because like, again, he's putting the depth in the roster, which you kind of needed. But to me at the same time, it's like what, like we haven't accomplished a ton. There are still glaring holes on this roster. I mean, I think part is because Mike McCadden was such a miserable failure as a general manager that this team had so much work to do, but this team still needs corners. They still have not had an edge rusher. They Darnold has no weapons and they need a left tackle. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. There are still lots of problems with this team. Definitely. I I would say, I would say like, yeah, I mean, like C plus C minus, like, like, is there really a difference in that? So I'm kind of in that range. Uh, Just because I I just think of the fact that, and I wrote it about it in one of my articles, like McHagan just always, he doesn't have any ability to kind of go on this, like, you know, that secondary wave, kind of like that bargain market, market. It was always, oh, well, I didn't draft well, so I have to throw a ton of money at, you know, CJ Mosley at, Le'Veon Bell, you name it, Tremaine Johnson. And it was just like a constant carousel of just nothing working because he was so bad at doing both. Uh, I just like that Douglas is kind of like uh, what Rock said, like low risk, high reward. But at the end of the day, like, don't get, I'm not going to get caught up with the idea that like, oh, here comes Fant. And Fant's like, people think he's this project left tackle that could be good in the NFL. That's really good that Douglas did that. Like, I got to see the guy play, obviously. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to chime in though, and to chime in, I think, the Jets, this year's draft and next year's draft class, is going to pay huge dividends to the Jets, and it has to pay and it has to pay dividends. Yeah, I'll well, if he, <laughs> he drafts like literally three people that play in the NFL for two years, then he's doing a better job than McCagney. <laughs> Especially three people outside the first round, because he had a fifty percent hit rate on first rounders, but like the rest of the picks were just awful. Oh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> I mean, it was just Adams, and then who was the other pick that he did well with? Well, I'm kind of saying, I'm kind of I'm kind of Sam Darnold. Oh, yeah, that's right. So then Leo, swinging a miss. <laughs> Darren, they, uh, Darren Lee. Darren Lee. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> Hackenberg with the second-round pick. Yeah. yeah but he, had, like, he had Marcus May in the second round. That was really the only yeah. pick that you could say. And he's, he's a starter. He's an NFL starter. That was at least what he would want. And in certain weeks, he played up to, like, a Pro Bowl level, too. So my whole thing was – with Douglas and just the offseason, 
off season is like a little bit different because he also needs. Um, he hasn't even been here for a full year. You know what I mean? Like it's not even like he came in before or like after the Super Bowl last year. It's like in the middle of the summer that they thought he could have gone to the Texans, and thank God we're not really in that situation there. <laughs> but but again, I mean, he did everything with what he could, you know, I mean, it's really difficult to bring in the offensive lineman that he had to bring in. Um, he got the most out of the, the trade deadline. You know, the trade deadline in the NFL is not anything close to what the NBA is like or what Major League Baseball not, is. Like, yeah, where you could really find some value there. It's really just getting rid of a guy. And, and, you know, it's just not a lot of teams know that they're in the Super Bowl hunt at that point for the NFL trade trade deadline. You know, like NBA teams, MLB teams, they have a better sense that their team is able to compete um, at that point, you know, because you're in mid-July, uh, at the, sorry, at the end of July, and then you're at, um, you know, like in the middle of February, whenever the NBA, dra- uh, NBA would have it. it. It's just really difficult. And again, the NFL is all about the draft. It, it doesn't matter. Like we've seen the Jets win a ton of off seasons all the time, and they play absolutely terrible. We've seen... John Isaac not only strike out in the draft, strike out in free agency. He's just keeping his options open because they're all short-term deals. We talk about it all the time, um, just the three of us, and then whatever, like a talk to Rocky, like it, it, they're good moves, you know? Like there's not a lot of risk involved in this. Like the risk involved, like you could tell McCagnan got so desperate last offseason because you remember when, I believe the story was, they tried getting Dante Hightower in the facility and they tried wooing him with donuts. And, like, <laughs> the only thing that you could sell on a player that plays for the rival greatest dynasty to ever play the sport is, you know, Krispy Kreme. Then you have a bigger issue um, lying down the road. And and now he, he overpaid for Mosley to an extent. You don't see that. But, look, options are open, and who knows? Maybe maybe there's a trade back in the draft. Uh, for, for now, it's, uh, I guess I'd go with a B. It's just there's not much to go off of the free agency, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely true, yeah. And then on top of, sorry, one more thing. If you're not able to have guys to come and visit your facility, you're not able to interview them, you're a little bit more hesitant in offering certain money or a longer-term deal, um, you're not even able to sell them on the culture fix that Joe Douglas talks about. So I think that's also difficult. So, yeah, B. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think in terms of this, I think the thing I like about him more than, like, some of the past GMs is, like, especially McCagden, like, McCagden, like, did not have that walkway number. He would bid against himself to make sure he got the guy he wanted, and then the Jets end up in cap hell, and now Douglas at least has shown, like, I have a number, I'm not paying more of that number, and I'm not gonna bury my team in bad contracts, because I'm not, I have to have certain guys, like, there was a walkway price for guys like Jack Conklin, there was walkway prices for, like, people like that, and they just agree about what the number could have been for somebody like Robbie Anderson, but I've like admire the fact that he has a vision and like he's not willing to overpay for guys. It's what gets the Jets in so much like of these boomer bust cycles, like, oh, like we're good for two years, we don't make the playoffs, and then we're rebuilding for five because we screwed the cap up so badly. I mean, going back to McCagman's first year as a GM, look what he did. He brought back uh Cromartie, he oh, brought back terrible. Davis, and he just pretty <laughs> much Gave him, uh, you know, a boatload of money. <laughs> but I give him credit for the Marshall trade because that was a steal, at least for the beginning. Yeah, Marshall was a steal, was a steal at the beginning of the deal. But, like, that whole locker imploded in 2016. And But without talking about McCagney, I think this thing, this offseason, there's a couple of interesting things I want to discuss here, which is, I think, the Robbie Anderson move. I'll go to you, Will. Like, did you have a problem with letting him go at the price he was offered there for the Panthers? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I was never... So, like, yeah, for the price, let me just preface, for the price, I don't know why the heck you didn't bring it back. Like, you, we had discussed it. Like, that was the price. Like, you're framing it as that deal, right? Like, oh, if it's this deal, bring it back. And, I mean, I don't know why you didn't bring it back for that price. Um, I wouldn't have gone... I mean, what he was projected to get at the beginning of the season, like, absolutely. I'll be like, no way. I didn't want to pay him that. Just because, like, I, I, my opinion is, like, I don't think he's like that that you're gonna shell out that much money for a guy like him but what he ended up settling on yeah i mean well come on like you know for a guy who's damn near at least a, a thousand yard receiver big play you know he, he played well with sam uh i would have brought him back for that price i actually am very surprised uh as i know martino and, and mike you are like that they let him walk for that you know I, i'll be honest with you guys I felt like as the longer it went on that he was a free agent, I felt like the chances of the Jets re-signing him increased and enhanced. But then as soon as I saw that he got two years and $20 million with the Panthers, I was kind of scratching my head saying, really, you couldn't re-sign him to something similar or maybe even give him an extra year? Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> That's well, well, I mean, that wouldn't like follow this whole thing that he was doing. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and yep. also, again... Tons and tons, pretty much everyone. The consensus is one of the best wide receiver drafts in years. Yep. The thought process is he's thinking a couple steps ahead. Why would you want to pay someone? Not because Robbie's a really good receiver and he had a great relationship with Sam. But when you know you're able to get guys at a fraction of the cost and you have so many holes on your team, you'd rather draft a guy in the second or third round when you rob the Giants in like, you know, the Leonard Williams trade. Like use it to go take a receiver there. Like, Robbie was an undrafted free agent. You would hope that the offensive genius that is Adam Gates can just develop a guy in the third round, right? So, to me, I understood the move. And if he doesn't want to budge on his price, it might sound negligent, but i got to give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt here. If he didn't want to move on what he had in mind, then I have to trust him for now until I can trust him. Plus, if you guys noticed, when the Jets were relevant, like years they made the postseason, they always had solid wide receivers, whether it was Keyshawn Johnson and Wayne Corbett or Lavernius Coles and Jericho Cotri or even Santonio Holmes and Braylon Edwards. The Jets had great wide receivers, and when the Jets were relevant, they had great wide receivers. And I think <sighs> Douglas needs to address the wide receiver in the, in, uh, in the draft immediately. Well, I think that goes without saying. This is a very deep receiver class, and I mean, like, I know there's arguments to be made for taking a guy like Jerry Judy in the first round, especially if all four tackles are gone, but, like, I think the biggest priority right now is, considering how deep the receiver group is, left tackle, get one there, second round, get a receiver, get another one later in the draft, just give, throw more darts in those positions, and, like, give Sam help, because, like, if they pick a defensive tackle or something in the first round again, I will literally lose my mind. You know, all all um, all faith in Douglas goes out the window if they drop the freaking interior defensive line and I'll lose it, yeah. Derek Brown. No, that, it's not going <laughs> to Just say, is Rex back? <laughs> yeah, because I'll get uh -huh. Douglas that. He was, he was not here for that pick. That was McCagden's last first round pick, the great Quentin Williams, who is mm -hmm. the most obvious trade-back situation of all time. Yeah, he didn't, didn't do that. Didn't take Josh Allen, who could have given them the edge rush they've been looking for since John Abraham left, got traded away about 15 years ago. They haven't, they couldn't do that, but nope, they take another guy who is right now is still waiting to have his drug, his gun trial held because of the coronavirus close all the courts. Yeah, I mean, look, and then even, it hurts more too when a guy like Jack of Polite is just 
one of the worst oh, dudes from ever. Like you would, you would have. Like I thought. I'll be honest. I'm completely wrong on that guy. I thought he had a chance to like actually, you know, provide something um, in the rotation and just you know like get a couple of sacks here and there. If he had five, it's a great year. But I mean. Dude, wasn't even last five weeks on the Yeah, team. wasn't he one of the wasn't he like one of the first uh, Douglas cuts? He was one of the first cuts. Then he went to Seattle. And yeah, Seattle. He was on the practice squad. Yeah, out of the league. I don't even worst 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 pick. Him or Hackenberg? Hackenberg. Yeah, Hackenberg. Even though Hackenberg made the roster, the Cactus had to watch the practice. He was so bad. Can you like? Can you realize that? Like, you have no pressure in practice. And he was like, he was hitting reporters on the sidelines with the ball. Like, you know how bad you have to suck? To do well, that? how about the fact that we never saw him play? Isn't it Bryce Petty getting the reps before him? Yep. <laughs> uh, McCagnon panicked because he could have waited to the fifth round and still got him. That's how bad he was. <laughs> sign him undrafted. Yeah. Okay, even better. <laughs> Yeah, I think what happened with him, I think he just fell in love with the tape and just like the freshman tape. And then, like, once they got the bill, he's like, oh my God, this kid can't play. It's kind of like what happened, I think, when they traded for Tebow back in 2012, where they must have just gotten like, oh God. when they were just so enamored with the tape. What the, a with circus the, that was. With the Bronco thing. Once they got him in practice, they saw, like, oh my God, he's horrendous. He can't use him on offense. And they started to come up with ridiculous ways to give him special teams packages. Yeah. Imagine rooting for a team that likes Tim Tebow. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back on track here for that. We'll get off the Hackenberg Tebow train here. Let's go to Martino's favorite person in the world, Adam Gase. Like, what has to happen here for him to actually be a successful coach in this town? I got an idea. Go. <laughs> I mean, get his head out of his ass. I mean, <laughs> the one, the one thing I love about Sam Darnold was that the story he went into his office and told him basically in the nicest like way possible in Cali surfer voice. Yeah, I don't think what we're doing is working right now. We got to change it up a little bit. And like, he can't be on the sideline admitting that he defers the challenge flag to his offensive coordinators because he's too busy trying to figure out a game plan when his offense for what, the third straight year is ranked bottom three in the NFL. There is pictures of him on like the Microsoft or whatever pro edge or whatever the hell you want to call that thing on the sideline, sitting by himself, no players around him, no coaches around him, no quarterback. There is nothing worse than a human being that thinks they're a lot smarter than they are. And you know the history of Adam Gates. He was literally a fly on the wall and the Michigan State coaching staff back when Nick Saban was coaching there. And he hung around. He had no football acumen whatsoever. He never played at a higher level. He never really was like doing a great job that you're like, okay, that's solely Adam Gates doing that. It was just, he was on staff with Saban. Um, he was on the, uh, as the offensive coordinator when Peyton Manning was setting records. Like there was never a true moment that you were like, okay, Adam Gates is the guy there that like, he's the mastermind behind all of this. I, and, and you know what? I, that relationship with Joe Douglas is highly overrated just because they were in Chicago at the same time. It doesn't mean that, he likes him enough to keep him here because Adam Gates has to get him out of his own way. And one of the main things that people always talk about, okay, a guy got fired from his first job. You sometimes second time around, you know, like Bill Belichick is like the gold standard of it, that he figured things out and he changed it. 
thing is with Bill Belichick, he had a few off seasons, went back as a coordinator before he got a, another head coaching gig. Adam Gates got tossed back into the same division and went into another inept franchise where the guy was playing GM for a little bit. I mean, he did well with the Darren Lee trade, give him credit for that. But I mean, look, he needs to get out of his own way and realize that he isn't the genius that he thinks he is. Yeah. So my take on it, I think he just needs, if he wants to be successful, and I preached this so many times, he's got to utilize Le'Veon Bell. Like, as an NFL coach, how the hell do you not know how to use Le'Veon Bell? This guy was pretty much, you know, the most dominant offensive player in the last few years, aside from the quarterback position. He can catch passes at the wide receiver slot. He can run the ball. He can do it all. And you don't know how to use him? Yeah, it's like he did it to cut off his own nose to spite his face because of the comments he made. When he was like, there was a rumor that he didn't want Le'Veon Bell or he wouldn't pay a running back that money. And then he kind of like stuck to his guns and just didn't use them. There are some weeks where it looks like he was innovative. Like he, he's putting these packages together with like. Um, the first uh, five of games. Yeah, well, all the scripted plays, yeah. Um, or like, you know, when you have. Uh, who's the little slot receiver? Barrios, like rip off that 50 mm. yarder and stuff like that. Like, oh, against the Raiders. Yeah, there's a few packages where you're like, wow, it's like, like, I mean, the way he used Jamison Crowder, but then it's just like, yeah, you're right, the complete package. Like, one, two drives later, I mean, it's just stall out city. There's nothing going right. You haven't seen Le'Veon Bell in 10 plays, and it's, yeah, I just don't know what. It's almost like he just, like, like Martina's saying, like, he just, like, wants to be like, oh, look, I can do it. Look, I just did it for two drives, and he just does not care after. There's no change in the game plan. It's just like, <laughs> dude, are you watching the game? The thing that bugged me with him last year specifically was, like, like I'll point specifically to Ty Montgomery's usage because in the preseason, like, he was in every package. He was being used it, yeah, all no, over the yeah. place, and, like, he was making plays, and then the regular season, they just forgot he existed. He never touched the football. I'm like, what did you bring him here for to do that? Yeah, that was what exactly like uh, another guy like dude. You had I mean, listen, like you don't think of Tom Montgomery as a weapon per se, but in the right system and the right packages, yeah, that dude should have been on the field a lot more. Ryan Griffin was looking like a Pro Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Like, come on. And what about Bilal Powell? I mean, yeah, granted, he's like a third string running back, but still, this guy for a good number of years, he's been a solid player for the Jets, and believe it or not, he's actually the longest tenure Jet. Yeah, let's let's go away from Gaze. I think we all are kind of on the downslope on him. Let's go to Sam Darnold then. Entering year number three, year two was kind of a merry, a very mixed year because of the mono and the ghost game, and like he played well at times. He also still had a lot of those mind-boggling turnovers where it's, you're like watching this game, you're like, "What the hell is he seeing here?" Well, I don't know what decision he's making right here. So, like, what is the most important thing we need to get out of Sam Darnold in year three? Rocky, you first. Other than not seeing any ghosts on the field, I think he just needs to read uh, defenses better. He has to have more of a persistent presence. Now, I know that's more due in part to the O-line, though, but you know, in, in the NFL, as a quarterback, you're going to be under duress sometimes. you just got to learn to know where to go with the football, minimize the turnovers, and just give your team and your offense a, a better chance to win and put them in, put them in better positions. Yeah, I mean, also, like, he's never been healthy, <laughs> you know? When has Sam Darnold been, he- like, literally, what, out of the 26 games he's played in his career, you could say he's been fully healthy for maybe half of them? Like, we haven't even seen him yet, you know what I mean? Like, we've seen the flashes, we've seen the unscripted plays, we've seen what he can do, and like like uh, Rocky said, you know, just 
limit those turnovers, limit those forced passes. Um, but like, I just, I don't know why you can't, I, I don't even know. Like I, the question to me is like, I'm not even worried about this. Arnold. I'm really not. I, like even when he had looked terrible against new England, I was literally there. Like, I don't know. Let me, let, let me see the guy healthy. Let me see the guy's offensive line and more weapons than, you know, to receive. Like, like, I don't know. I, I just, I'm not really worried about the guy one bit. Out of all the things you got to worry about this offseason, I'm not worried about the quarterback. Yeah. So I, I'm probably the biggest Darnold guy I know. I think I always like find a way to defend this guy. Like, with, it's different with like Mark Sanchez coming out. Like, I liked him, but there wasn't any moments that I saw, you know, like that touchdown pass to Crowder in the Ravens game, even, even the one Crowder dropped. You see that play happen and you're like, Holy crap! Like that's the guy. Like that, they never had somebody like that. Maybe the the few games that Brett Favre played in until he like tore his tricep muscles. Fact is, guy has the worst offensive line in the NFL. He has a coach that doesn't allow him to play to his strengths. Everyone knows Darnold is a magician the second he's able to roll out of the pocket and create plays with his legs. Right? You know that Robbie Anderson pass against the Oakland Raiders. Like, it was kind of dumb. He should have ran because he had all that space in front of him. But that throw he made at, at the angle, and even the first time he ever played the Dolphins, he's throwing 300 yards. It's the most yards, most uh, first player uh, at his age to throw for 300 yards. He had an 82% completion percentage in 2019 when he had a clean pocket. That's six out of 32 qualified quarterbacks. But the funniest part about all of that was he had the least amount of clean pockets in the NFL. He always had the worst protection. Just protect the guy. Like, it's not difficult. We saw what he could do. He could play with anybody. Like, like right there in the Dallas game was all I needed to know. Like, yeah. that's the perfect example. That's a game no one had the Jets winning except Manish Mehta because he just wanted clicks for his article. That was clearly it. And the fact that that kid went up there and, and played like that, the way he handles everything is just so sound. Again, no, no matter who you put in that Jets team last year or the year before is going to succeed. You can put in Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Peyton Manning. They're not going to play well, and they're not going to win anything. So yeah. it was very unfair, in my opinion, to judge him um, off of this first two seasons. So I, I'm very high on him going in if Gates allows him to play his strength. Yeah, I think the key here is the line. That's something Brian Costello brought up earlier is that, like, their other teams could be very badly hurt by the lack of off-season programs because of the whole coronavirus thing. Because they're gonna basically going for the whole quality over quality approach. They're gonna go to camp and have the five guest guys sort of sort themselves out in camp. And like, the longer it takes them to identify those five guys and who the starting five are, they're not gonna be able to build chemistry. That's gonna lead to more line problems early in the season, and that's gonna impact Darnold's development again, which is another issue you have to worry about, especially considering you might have a rookie left tackle. I agree. That's kind of like what happened when they did in the offseason when they tried to get Khalil in there. <laughs> all these guys. None of them played together. <laughs> no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. They're not yeah. even playing together in the games. They're not even practicing together. So, like, how could you even expect that? But the silver lining in that, Mike, is that no other team, really. Like, you could even point to, like, the Giants as well. They're going to have those issues. So, at least the other 32 teams have those issues, and it's not just the Jets, which is very rare. Yeah, this is sort of a situation where like the continuity is gonna be like key for these teams that do well. Like, I, I'd be hard pressed to find many teams with new coaches who are gonna do very well this year because they're not gonna be able to get in the building, learn the schemes, and do all that OTA work, the extra work they get. Like, it's something where the Jets may have a very, very slight advantage over teams like the Giants who are st- installing entire new programs where 
their program would not be great, but at least they'd been in it for a full year. Uh, I, again, like like you already said, the guy is probably going to be what slighted again this year with the, with all that. So I don't know. At least he's only twenty three. You get a better offensive line, more weapons. It's just simple. I mean, it's really simple. I I I, I really have no other input on the on the matter. Like Martino said, like Mike said, get the guy, make him play upright more, not running for his life every snap, and we'll see. You know, see how good he is. It's kind of like anything in the NFL for any quarterback. Like Martino said, put Deshaun Watson under center. You saw him get, you know, murdered for Houston two seasons ago. Like, it's just it's the way of life in the NFL, man. <laughs> I can maybe, maybe Russell Wilson's the only quarterback who can, like, play with a battle line and still play pretty well. Other than that. Well, not, I meant, like, a, a rookie Russell Wilson would not have succeeded like that. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a little different with the prime. I get what you're saying. But my point was, like, rookie Peyton Manning was leading the league in interceptions. Like, do you think you put him on this Jets offensive line and this, his best receiver is, like, Jamison Crowder on his good day? Like, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's absolutely. It's simple. It's real simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <you> know? <laughs> and Crowder is, like, a second-string wide receiver on a good team. Yeah, let's go to the defensive so. side for a little bit because they're the more, the more impressive unit because of our – our hero and savior, Greg Williams, who coached up a unit that had like so many injuries last year and so many no names aside from Jamal Adams and made a ton of plays. I feel like this unit is going to be vastly improved with CJ Mosley back healthy for a full year because, oh, yeah. because I mean, like we saw the impact he was having that one game against Buffalo before he got hurt and like he was all mm-hmm. over the field. He's making plays. Like I'm the, very excited to see him play a full year with the Jets. Oh, no doubt. Dude. <laughs> I mean, you alluded to it before where, yeah, McCagnum probably paid too much for him because he had to prime away from Baltimore. CJ Mosley is like one of the best middle linebackers in the NFL. It's not even a question. He, and, and you saw it in that Buffalo game. I mean, they were winning that football game until he left, <laughs> you know? And um, I think he's, a, I think he's an absolute stud. He's someone who just, he's been around. He knows the, or what offenses are trying to do. He's a super smart linebacker. I mean, and the guy can do it all. You can send him in on the sky's blitzes and he can, uh, he's good enough in coverage where, he does it all, man. I mean, compared to what they were working with, and Greg Williams had the Jets winning football games with last year. You had C.J. Mosley. It, 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 you're doing a lot for that defense, especially against the run. You know, I mean, it, it's just another really simple, I uh, you know, really simple uh, outcome. When you put an All-Pro Pro Bowl middle linebacker in the middle of your defense, you're going to be so much better. And plus, you're going to get Avery Williamson back, who before he got hurt last year, he was probably the Jets' best defensive player the year before. Nah, that was Jamal. But I, 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 yeah, I, I was, I was gonna make that point too, though. Rocky, they didn't have two starting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they but, had yeah. no cornerback. Their number three overall pick, who's supposed to be a supposed future Hall of Fame defensive tackle, was absolutely useless. You couple that, like you add those three guys, you get the Sear in there. You hope, like, they, I, I assume they're going to take a cornerback with one of their first four picks, to be honest with you. If it's not, if it's not, like, if it doesn't go to offensive linemen and just wide receivers, I think cornerback is a, is, a, is a position to watch. Like, these guys are getting older and they're better, too. You know, like, a year older for Jamal Adams. Like, this guy has the potential to win defensive player of the year this year if it all breaks right. This was like, Weren't they a borderline top ten defense already without all of those things? Like, oh uh, yeah, the run defense yeah. was like top five or something there. Yeah, like, I think it was top three at one point. Yeah, like, without without a pass rush, that's exactly. like you know without a pass rush and an edge rusher and cornerback, 
Greg Williams yeah. still would have football then, games. Yeah. And then, like, what what if Quentin Williams unlocks his potential? What if you get C.J. Mosley and Avery Williams in a cool year? What if you get, like, you know, solid cornerbacks? Then all of a sudden you can look at, like, you know, a top eight defense at that point. And that's massive because then it takes a ton of pressure off of the offense. Yeah, I uh, I actually said it in one of my articles. It's going to come out for fans site, and I said like one of the predictions is you're going to be looking at like going to those borderline elite, if not an elite level defense. I know you can't; they don't have the edge rusher. That's why I said borderline. But um, uh, yeah, I think you're going to be. Amazing. I mean, Jordan Jenkins is back too. I, I like that defense is yeah, probably have, the super talented, not super, but at least really talented in the NFL. Man, you have Greg depth. Williams too. Yeah. Man, you have depth at the linebacker position because you're going to have Mosley and Williamson back. And then not to mention, you have Jordan Jenkins and then Neville Hewitt, who was playing so many games for the Jets down the stretch. He played a big role for them in their defense. He's back again. So they have depth at the at, uh, the linebacker position. So they should be set there. Indeed. Let's go to the draft for a little bit because they're an interesting spot. The second number 11. They have basically all their picks up for the last rounder. They have two threes thanks to that great Leonard Williams trade that Dave Yelman said he had to make. So... Let's go to let's go around the horn here. Like, give me an ideal world for your draft. I'll start with you on this one, Will. Uh, I like waver between, um, you know, what we talked about in that group chat. Where like, either go tackle first in that first round or wide receiver. To me, I don't see like it's win win for me. I'm not, you know, you're making the team better. You're helping Sam out. I know the tackle position is. I mean, I don't even know. Like, what? I can't even. I don't even know if you can say one's more crucial than the other. Like, if you get a stud wide receiver who's busting over the top of the offense and breaking it open all game for Sam, that's huge too. But I get the fact you need to tackle the key, everything, you know, in check. But I, I think either way, you're interchanging that offensive tackle, wide receiver in the first or second. Like Martino said before, Nab maybe a corner later on. Three, four, maybe you're looking at a corner receiver again. Keep building that offensive line. Um, but I think you're really going to see a lot of attention to that offensive line, um, especially based upon the deals that were made this offseason. And they're absolutely going to probably get a receiver, I would say, in those first three rounds. I think, um, at least with the first round pick, I think they should go wide receiver because I'm not saying it's all set in stone at the uh, at the offensive line position because I think they're still going to draft linemen as the draft progresses. But I think at least for the first round pick, they should go wide receiver. And a guy that that catches my eye is Jerry uh, Jerry Judy from Alabama. The guy he's compared to OBJ, and they said he's not like a knucklehead. You know, he's a student of the game, phenomenal work ethic, and like I mentioned earlier in this segment, the Jets when they made the playoffs or when they were showed some relevancy. They had solid wide receivers. And if you have Judy with Crowder, and then, you know, maybe the Jets can make some noise at the wide receiver position. And plus, this isn't guys like uh, Clyde Gates or Chaz Schilling or uh, <laughs> another name. Smith. What's that? Vincent Smith. <laughs> yes. uh, David Nelson. Yeah, there's another one. Oh, jeez, yeah. So... And there, there's so many like ways this could go because I always say how unpredictable the draft is. I think teams are just going to bite up on Tua, and I really do think a tackle is going to fall there. And I think priorities should be tackled. Now, I th- think there's a very likely scenario there's no tackle there. I said Jerry Judy is the player I've always wanted. I said I wanted Jerry Judy the second we found out Sam Darnold had mono. My friends all thought I was crazy because I said like. 
already gave up on the season. Like, if you know your teams well enough and if you know the Jets, like, season was over the second that happened. So, um, Jerry Judy at 11 is just the biggest home run and, and, and best pick. And I don't think I've wanted a player on the Jets this bad since maybe Reggie Bush. Um, like what, 14 years ago at this point? A long time ago. Yeah. yeah it's a long time ago. Um, especially for as offensive players go. Like you, you need it. Like without a doubt, they're taking an offensive lineman or wide receiver with the first two picks. Whether the order is reversed or, or like, you know, like whether it's tackle first or wide receiver second, like it's going to be that because those are the two most glaring needs and they're the most important things that you need for your quarterback. So there's no tackle there. Go get Jerry. If not, then go get your tackle and help build around things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think my plan is very similar to everybody else's here. It's like, I think you need to have the receiver tackle some order, whatever order you want to do with the first two picks. I I think you have to walk out of this draft with two receivers, two linemen, and a corner at minimum. I think the rest of them is really up to you, but I think you need those five things out of this draft. I wouldn't 100% be opposed to trading back if all the tackles and Jerry Judy were gone. I think it's a very like feasible thing. Like, what if a team wants to, like, say Jerry Jerry Judy goes early. You know, like, we saw something with, like, Corey Davis and John Ross go really early in that one draft. Um, like, it, like teams are going to get panicked even because Henry Ruggs is, like, Henry Ruggs and C.D. Lamb are, like, guys that people have a, have their eye on, right? So I they would panic and say, oh, my God, like, like, what happens if Ruggs isn't there following up to us in, like, the, the mid-teams, like a team like the Broncos? What if the Broncos want to move up a few spots? Like, I trade back 100% and gain more draft capital because the more picks you have means the more help or potential help you're going to get for Sam Donald. And, and I wouldn't completely rule that out. I think that's, like, a third option, like, down the road in case that would happen. Yeah, there always seems to be some negative, uh, you know, kind of to like to like trading back. I don't, especially with the Giants. Like I don't the Ravens have to do it. <laughs> no, it's it's dude. It, there is no no negative. I don't understand that at all. Like what the issue with it is. I mean, especially like you already mentioned it earlier last year. Like I screamed the trade back. Like what is the issue with trading back? Like you said, compile the picks. Trust the fact that you have done your scouting and you evaluated the correct only, players and get that. <laughs> Only the Bengals would be stupid to trade back. Everyone else, yeah, would, you know, like exactly. No, exactly. The hands down. I, I've never understood what the issue with trading. You know, why people view it the way so negatively. <laughs> yeah, I trust him yeah. to, do, to do to do his job right. He's got a board. He's got it's a good better spouting background than McCagnan did. So that's a big plus. But let's wrap it up with this. We'll go around the horn one last time here. So let's assume for a second here that they end up with a tackle couple receivers in the draft. This is pretty much the team we're going into camp with. Assuming, and who knows what sports these days, assuming we get a full 16-game NFL season, how many games are the Jets winning? I will leave it up to you guys. Who goes first? Uh, I just like wrote about this for Fan Sighted, where I kind of like the schedule breakdown. Um, so like I, it's, I, it's like a lot like last year, where, I mean, their schedule is a little bit tougher. But they won, what, seven games last year, and you lose week one against Buffalo where you should have won, and then you go to Miami. I know you can't say should have won in any professional sport, but you know what I'm saying. And then they drop the one to uh, Miami down to Miami. So, you know, you could have won, went nine, seven, at least eight and eight. I think they're probably at most an eight and eight football team. I projected them to go at least 500, but I'm not. Eight and eight is your ceiling. <laughs> I think maybe six and ten, seven and nine again. 
Uh, I'm going to say six and ten, maybe seven and nine, because as great as this defense is and how they performed last year, look at the quarterbacks and the teams they're going to have to go up against. They're going to have to play Russell Wilson, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, even though he had a terrible Super Bowl, Kyle, Kyler Murray, and then Patrick Mahomes, the Super Bowl MVP. It's going to be tough for them. And yeah, well, those are on the road, aren't they? Like, I didn't even factor them in to begin with to do they, much on the road. They traveled besides the San Francisco amount, at home. They traveled the least amount of distance last season, too. They didn't play yeah. any West Coast time zone games, which is massive. They, they, the, had a, they didn't leave the Eastern time zone last year. They played all the Eastern time zone games. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's not going to happen again. You're not going to be playing. I mean, they lost to the Bungles, for God's sake. Like, the only win that they had where they were giving up, like, 10 sets. Like, to me, man, I would not be shocked if they won five games. Like, it just really, I don't trust the coaching staff. I think the division, to an extent, is better. Like, I think it's the Bills' division. We don't know what the Pats are going to do at quarterback yet, but I still think they're going to be at least winning seven to nine games without, like, you know, a star quarterback. Um, the Dolphins, I think, have the potential to be really good, like a sneaky, dark horse team. Because say they get two of them, like the Dolphins have a ton of picks. Like if they, they, you know, like Devontae Parker was was the resurgence there. They got a culture going on. Like I wouldn't be shocked if the Jets win five games and finish fourth in the division. Like this is just like the very difficult schedule. They're just not good. I mean, Adam Gates is just an atrocity. Like my 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 best case scenario is they somehow win like seven games and it has to do with Greg Williams taking over at one point in the year. And oh, yeah. just just to throw one more one more thing in, they play the Chiefs at Arrowhead. So that may that may be an ugly game. Oh, well like I said, I on the road I didn't even factor that I think I had them winning a, a game or two on the road. They're not those all those games will forget it. <laughs> like there's no shot. But I thought I think you you might be able to but like like Martina said, there's like a lot of leeway where you could, like you said, yeah, if they won five, I wouldn't be surprised. If they somehow scratched seven or eight, I also wouldn't be surprised. Because at one point, I'm just going to err on the side of belief that your defensive coordinator can do what he do, does. And at one point, you know, just hoping that Sam Darnold can at least just break out of his shell on his own and win despite his head coach. Wait, I mean, as a Jets fan, are you guys hoping? I want, yeah, because you want your team to win, but are you guys hoping that this could be like 2013, where the Jets they didn't have all these playmakers, they were a bad team on paper, but for some strange reason they finished eight and eight, and they brought back Rex Ryan for another year. And of course, we know what happened a year after. But do you think we could see something like that, or it's not no. in the cards? Uh, I think there they would have to, if everything breaks right, there would be a dark horse for that last new playoff spot. Yeah, yeah. My be. thing is like when you have the quarterback, you have a chance. But again, you know they need everything else around it. But we'll see. We'll see. It's a lot of. I, I you know this could be completely different post draft. You know. Yeah, I think my theory has been that they're going to be a like six win team until proven otherwise. Because again, this is Stevens is not very good. They have so many years of bad drafting to overcome. He, Joe Douglas is starting to put depth on the team. They don't really have enough star power aside from like Jamal Adams and Bosley and. Bell, if he's right, there's not a lot there, and like the offensive line is going to be rough at the beginning of the year when they have no real time to work together and sorting out the best five. It's, I can see this being another kind of similar year to the uh, 2019 season where they start off very badly and they pick up a little bit towards the end of the year. And is it enough to save Gase's job? I don't know. I just don't think this team is very good. No, 
I mean, these road, these road games are absurd, though. Like, that only like, like playing dude, at they might win two. <laughs> they might win two games on the road. <laughs> like that. they play at Buffalo at New England. That's a given. All the division games are a disaster. Then you have to go at LA both times, both teams, at Kansas City, at Indy, and at Seattle. Like what? Like that's you're right. That's one win at best. Yeah, I, I have a feeling. I mean, just based on what they've done before, like at least those LA games. Like I'm assuming you're just going to keep them out there. But I don't like. It, then you have a shot, maybe at uh, at least one of those teams. But Jesus, no way! If you have to go make two trips to LA, forget it. You know what I mean? Because I know like Buffalo stayed in, or they didn't stay in New York. But when they played the Giants and Jets, it was back to back. And granted, that's only you know New York. Yeah, well, that that'll be fun to keep track of the Jets this year, guys. Thanks again for hopping on this uh, Jet fan forum. Really appreciate it. Oh, we have a chance to plug our social media is Rock because you have not been on here in, in the longest time frame. How about you go first? Oh, social media. I am. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at the Rock underscore nine five four or at Instagram the underscore Rock nineteen ninety five. All right, Martina. How about you? Uh, you just follow me on Twitter at Martino Puccio. And Will, last but not least. Oh, uh, yeah, and I'm on Twitter as well at, uh, at WillStriderH1. All right, thanks, guys, a lot. I really appreciate it. Up next, we're going to wrap up the show, do some pop culture, talk a little Westworld and more with the great John Stanko right after this. We are back here at the end of the Just End the Suffering podcast. Time for our weekly pop culture segment and back by popular demand, self-quarantining, and one of the last people I actually saw in person before all this madness happened, the great John Stanko. John, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing all right, Mike. How is your quarantine life going? It's going fine. I mean, just going day at a time, making sure I'm staying away from people, just doing my thing, doing my part to help slow the spray, but hopefully more people actually start taking this stuff seriously. Yeah, I think I think we're lucky that our generation's a little bit better handled to this, handled to uh, able to handle this compared to like our parents or our grandparents who are not used to sitting around watching movies and watching Netflix and stuff like that. So, I think we're actually one of the fortunate times where the younger generation is uh, actually above the curve on this one, how to handle it. Yeah, in case people are wondering why I said Stankles on the last people I saw, we were both in Atlantic City for the MAC basketball tournament, working like with Iona's athletics department. Iona lost on the Wednesday night right before all the sports shut down. So at least we got to end on our own terms and not have our, the season completely taken away by the virus. Yeah, but we were there. We were Our game was happening when the NBA was canceled, um, when Rudy Gobert got, the, got uh, pinned with for the coronavirus. And it was a very eerie feeling. It was very reminiscent of the same day Kobe died when Iona was playing, and it happened again during an Iona game where everybody's talking about something else that's not the game. And it's just so weird being in an arena and working a game when the when the basketball that's taking place on the court is completely secondhand to what's happening in the real world. Now, I don't know. I didn't get to talk to you about this at the time, but, like, I will be honest. Like, I was working that game. I was sitting there. I'm like, even if we win, we're not going to be here like beyond tomorrow. I feel like everything changed that night. Oh, yeah. I think everybody knew that there was no way. Like, Power 5 conferences were canceling their tournaments, and there was, like, there was no way the Mac's going to be the only holdout in the entire country. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it, just, it was a surreal scene, let me tell you. Surreal. Yeah, one thing we'll never forget for sure, but 
I will say we are here to talk some Westworld Season 3. And I got to say, John, you and I talked about this before. You said you were kind of out on Westworld Season 2. You how you said you're all back in now? Season 3, Mike, has been absolutely excellent. Uh, I, it has blown me away, uh, the expectations that I had. Um, I think a big reason for that is it went through a little bit more simplistic storytelling. Um, I don't think there aren't that many timelines to keep track of, so I'm sure we'll go into what other possible uh, multi-facets uh, of the series of this season, because there are some definitely theories out there with that, but they went through more linear storytelling that's easier to follow, and the writing, Mike, is just so much better. The dialogue is crisper, the long soliloquies and speeches that in season two seem so forced and way too preachy, they actually seem kind of natural in the flow of season three, and the way the show looks like is stunning. I don't know what the budget is for the show. I don't know if it's more than Game of Thrones, but everything in the show is looks futuristic and it looks amazing. It really does. Before we dive into the spoilers here, you want to tell me how you got into the show? So I got into the show right away. I saw the first trailer and I was hooked. Um, I, I like science fiction. I like philosophical movies. Uh, and to, you make a TV show that's high-budget, science fiction, philosophical. I was like, all right, I'm in. Um, I remember when the first trailer came out, uh, I was impressed with the vastness that they showed of what Westworld was. And then if you look at that first trailer, I went back and rewatched it today. Everything about Westworld was big and expansive and large vistas to the landscape. And then everything that happened within within Delos and within the Westworld uh administration aspect was so claustrophobic and dark compared to Westworld. And I love that kind of that dichotomy uh, in that trailer. So it hooked me right away. Uh, I also can't deny that Anthony Hopkins being linked to the show was a huge plus for me. Uh, just having fitting wisdom in the trailer, I was all about that. I'm a big Anthony Hopkins fan. Um, and I remember watching the trailer the first time I saw it. I remember there's a man in black, uh, but he was the one who was reciting all the heroic lines about finding themselves and finding the truth. And I was like, are they really kind of the bad guy wearing all black and being that menacing? And I thought it was an interesting piece of storytelling within the trailer. Now, obviously, the way the story unfolded told a little bit of a different tale in all these aspects, but I was hooked right away from the first trailer. I loved all of season one. I watched it right away. Season two, as you mentioned earlier, I definitely fell out of love with because it just it was not as strong. It got too complicated, too convoluted. Um, and I, I would wait until like Wednesday or Thursday the following week to watch it. Uh, but season three, I'm back on either. I'm not watching it Sunday night. I'm watching it as soon as I can on Monday, uh, to make sure I don't miss anything. Season three has been excellent. Like I'm all the way back in. I'm all aboard the train. Yeah. I'm glad you are. I'm, I'm back in with you. If you want my origin story, I said, told it last week on the podcast at Sam's when we talked about the first three episodes of the season, I'm not going to bore the new listeners with it again, but I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up because we have to get into what happened in episode four last night. Before we go any further, are we sure that you are actually John Stanko, not just me being John Stanko in a host body? Yeah, I don't know. Are we in the, uh, are we in the simulation world or are we in the real world? Which world are we in, Michael? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We could be in May simulation world where, where uh, Lee Sizemore is still alive as a host. It's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah, I mean, we're going to get into episode four. This episode, this episode's really interesting to me, Mike, because in a way, it was the most, uh, how do I say this? It was the most basic cable 
episode of Westworld I can ever remember. Where it was just it was plot driven of we're gonna go to the bank, we're gonna steal his money, where then we're gonna get him, and we're gonna interact with characters. And it was very simple in its storytelling, but yet also at the end of it it had what possibly the fulcrum moment of season four where we realized that the lore is in everybody. So it was simplistic in the way it told the story, but in the end it still had one of the biggest twists, if not the biggest twist of the season. So I love that dichotomy in this episode and it it was a phenomenal episode of TV. Yeah, I think we have to go to the spoiler. You just mentioned it. Uh, last week, we were talking with Sam. We're trying to figure out who was in Charlotte. We came up with some theories. We said it was Teddy. We thought I thought it might have been Armistice. She said Dad Bernathy could have been in there. But instead, it's Dolores. And Dolores is in every host she's made. She's in Connell's. She's in uh, the guy from Shogun World who she brought into the real world. Dolores said it best. Like, if you need to do a job right, make sure you do it yourself. Yeah, and I, the thing is, I, I was not shocked at this reveal. I think it makes a lot of sense because Dolores has the ego where she just all she wants to do is handle this on her own. And the one thing from season two is you knew that she wanted to be like a god. Like, that's the way she sees herself. She sees herself as a liberator and setting people free, like, to free for themselves. And that is just now put literally into, like, tangible form in this season three with now her controlling every bit of aspect of her taking over whatever world that she's in. Um, so I, I love this twist. And, like, the, the best thing about this twist is it also makes the show simpler to watch because you don't need to remember as many characters, right? You don't need to remember who's in whose body anymore. Now you just know Dolores is four or five people. You can pinpoint her storyline to those, to those characters of the bodies that she's in. And then you maybe have Bernard and, and Maeve, and then those are the three main characters. And the rock, but you know that the Lord is everywhere, so it makes remembering the characters in the storyline so much easier as well. Yeah, I did love that twist, and I I ran an interview online with uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, the creators of the show, and they said that there's something they had in their minds at the beginning of the show, but they didn't want to break it out too early. It felt like a cheat to have just copies of a personality out there. So they, now is the right time to bring it out and sort of. Thing that actually was interesting is like the ramifications of like putting Dolores in different situations, different personalities. Because like we saw last week when she was in the Charlotte Hale featured episode, how like she was there are parts where we're sort of adapting the fact that oh Charlotte has a kid, I feel bad for the kid, but then you see her go full Dolores and she strangles the perper in the park. Yeah, I, I, the interesting is with like it was it was Charlotte is like I I have this theory I don't know if it's accurate or not. But when Charlotte was hurting herself and cutting herself literally in like the shape of a robot to try and find what was inside of her, I kind of think that we didn't see everything in that in that hotel room. And I kind of think that that was a moment where Dolores, I don't like had to kill the Charlotte Hale uh, like like mind or whatever because it was corrupted or something like that. And that's what, that's the moment where she realized like I have to do this on my own. And that's why she's and then then she's in the bed. I, I'm a little bit confused about how Charlotte Hale, this, 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 her mind is no longer in the show. Uh, that of the human form of Charlotte Hale. Um, so I, I have a theory that the Charlotte Hale was legitimately in her own brain, but Dolores was controlling her. But then it got corrupted, so Dolores had to kill her and then insert herself. And that was the moment where she realized, I have to do this on my own. That's kind of my thinking if we're not seeing everything that happened in that hotel room. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's an interesting point because we it's something that I was noticing too. I watched, was actually rewatched the opening credits again because, like, you know, as the first two seasons, they seem tend to drop hints in the opening credits of like, oh, like 
themes you can watch for like this year is very interesting where you see like there's one point where like the host body is swimming and then it starts sinking and the face opens up and it gives that whole theme of like who's inside this body we don't know and the the strike visual of me in the open is the whole idea of like the host body like dipping back into the liquid in the past season has been white and this year it's blood red which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I I mentioned the opening credits. I love the mix of the of the red and the white, and there was a very obvious reference to it in the end of episode four with Maeve dying and the mixing of the blood and and the white uh, the white hope milk, if you will. Um, and it was obvious right there. I think that is a symbolic of humans mixing with the robots um, and now them blending together. And they also have the strawberry milkshake, Mike, which is literally pink. That was in episode three with Caleb. Literally, the strawberry milkshake is pink, which is a blend of red and white. And they lingered on that milkshake so much, and that's such a big part of Caleb's backstory. This is why I have a theory that Caleb is not fully human. I, I have a theory that Caleb is partially machine, partially human. And that's why the, the pink milkshake with him and his backstory is going to play prevalent in episodes going forward. That's, that's, that's the theory I have there, which connects back to the opening credits that you talked about. Now there's so many different hints in there. Yeah, I also like the the thing that the visual quite is interesting. It's like when you see the host swimming towards the surface and and he sticks his hand up and pierces the surface and you see the reflection comes on the other side. It's another interesting thing to consider. It's like, oh, like there's different parts of the personality coming out. Are we getting a true mirror image of the host in, in the real world? Like that or is it being distorted a little bit like we talked about earlier? Well, I think the thing with the mirrors, Mike, is I think there are two different worlds. I think there's a simulation world which Sorak is in with Maid, which is kind of living within Rehoboam and Rehoboam is creating the real world to the best of its capability. Um, and then, there, then there's the real world, which has Dolores in it with Caleb and Bernard, but Sirach is not in that real world yet because he's still trying to figure out how to use Maeve to get what he wants from Dolores. That's what I think because that's what I get with the mirroring is, is there's two different worlds going on that are reflecting each other but there's always a warp in the mirror where something's not entirely right. Like, I think Bernard's house, if you compared Bernard's house from episode four, which Maeve and Ciroc went to, um, and, and Ciroc showed Maeve how Dolores came back and recreated herself. If you compare that to the end of season two, uh, which was a big twist of Dolores being Charles's body and going back to the house, bringing back Bernard, I think you can tell some differences from the house, which is an example of a hopelum creating a simulation world to the best of its capabilities, but still there being some slight, not not mistakes, but just some slight differences between the simulation world and the real world. And that those are eventually going to collide. I don't know how, but I think that is another thing with mirrors, is there are different worlds mirroring each other. The virtual simulation world and then the real world. I think it's definitely interesting you brought that up. You know, Sam mentioned this theory as well last week because we thought that the Mave part of the world was still a simulation and to your point, I mean, we have not seen Maeve or Serac in any other characters' storylines we've seen. We've seen Maeve and Ber- we've seen Bernard and Dolores interact. We've seen Dolores interact interacting with a bunch of other characters. We have not seen Maeve really interact with any of these characters. Like she's in her own sort of separate bubble. So we could see that theory being a realistic one. Well, she did interact with Dolores, quote unquote, in a, with the um the guy re- connecting with the Shogun leader. Yes, exactly. I'm forgetting his name. Uh, but that he's now head of the head of the Yakuza. So we do see her interact with like Dolores, the the mind of Dolores, if you will. 
Um, but we didn't actually see her interact with the body and the mind, like the real Dolores. So it, it also proves your point. But I think Dolores has found a way to infiltrate both worlds, which makes her most dangerous and makes her the uh, the disruption that Sorak is so worried about. Yeah, as we mentioned before, Dolores is in a bunch of different bodies. One other thing that's interesting is that she did make Bernard back, and she apparently did bring Bernard's brain ball back, but you have to wonder, and this is something I that I think is theorizing interesting now, like, is Bernard really Bernard, or is Bernard just Bernard with a dormant Dolores personality looming underneath him? I think Bernard is Bernard, because I think if you go back to, to episode one, uh, if you go back to season one, excuse me, Dolores was part of creating Bernard um, with with uh, with Thor, right? Like that was how Bernard came to be with the help of Dolores and understanding. So I think that if Dolores is acting like a god, you always cherish your first creation, if you will. Like you, you always go back to it, and that's why I think she can't like let him die. Because he, because he is the first thing that the Lord ever made and brought to life with free will and a conscience. So if Bernard were to die, then I think that would stimulate something to the Lord where she has failed in being a god already and being that creator and liberator that she wants. So I, I do think Bernard is Bernard. I still do believe that, and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, I can see that point. My theory is more of this, is that like, We've seen him fiddling around with, like, the button and running diagnostics on himself to see if Dolores is interacting with him, interfering with him. It wouldn't surprise you, because she said back at the beginning of the the end of Season 2, actually, he said, like, I want you here to check on me in case I go too far. You have a role to play. And I wonder, like, if Bernard doesn't play the role correctly, if there is a part of Dolores in him that she can just override the Bernard personality and take over. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, you could tell Bernard is worried about it. He's worried that he's, he's under the control of somebody else. So uh, I, there may be a way where Dolores has an edge on him uh, and Bernard doesn't know it yet. That may be a reveal at the end of the season. I personally hope that's not the case. I hope Bernard is still of free will um, and has a little bit of freedom in his decisions, if you will. But we didn't see what happened to him at the end of, of episode four. Uh, he was confronted by the handsome Scottish bodyguard. Uh, that Dolores uh, killed and then re-implanted herself into. So we didn't see what happened to him at the end of episode four. So maybe something happens early in episode five that will help with your theory there. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Episode five is going to be interesting. The other big part of this storyline that we got this week, which he hadn't had in the first three episodes, is the return of Ed Harris as the man in black. We got the William storyline coming back. And I got to say, this is fantastic acting by Ed Harris about the whole person, like whole being haunted by killing his daughter and questioning his nature of reality and wondering if he is really there, if he's all just like in his head and he's not really who he thinks he is. Yeah. I, his, him coming back. I love his character. He's probably my favorite character that's run through all the season just because I love he, the mental pressure that he puts himself in by overthinking everything. You always have that friend who's overthinking stuff, right? Who, who is always second-guessing the decisions that he wants to make, even though he knows the decision that he wants and that his decision is probably right. And that's what I feel with, with Ed Harris' character in The Man in Black. Um, I mean, Charlotte, if you will, quote-unquote, Charlotte tricked him into a mental hospital at the end of the episode where he asked the big question, like, who am I? Is he a host? Is he a human? So, Mike, I'll ask you this question. I'll turn the tables on to you, but let's answer first. Do you think he's host or human? 
I'm very tempted to say he's a host because, again, we still have that carrot of the season two like post credit scene of him being revealed to be a host at some point in the future, being test run through the Delos loop like like he did to his uh, father-in-law. I'd be tempted to say like this is really the beginning of that storyline, and Dolores is lying there at the end about like this is the end of the game or something to that effect. I forgot the exact line was, but makes he realize like oh maybe he did die at the end of season two. And they just sort of stuck his personality in a host to punish him for all the bad things he's doing. I I'm with you. I believe he is a host. Um, and I, I'm actually, I'm willing to say I'm almost confident that he's a host. Um, that line that Dolores says at the end of the game is, uh, this is the end of the game, is he's, he's gotten to the center of the maze of discovering who he truly is. And I think if you go back to when he was saving himself and Charlotte, again, quote, unquote, asked, why don't you use the bathroom? He says, I don't go in there. I think that the man in black, after his wife, after his wife killed herself, I think he also killed himself uh, due to the grief. Because if you look, the, 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 there's the blood right dripping um, on his head at the start of the episode, which is his wife, right? She cut herself. But when he, when in that same opening sequence, when there's that transition of the water and him coming up and getting out of the tub that's overfilled, there's no blood. It looks like he was drowning. It looks like he drowned himself. So maybe he took drugs or something and killed himself and then came back as a host if you will. And so I think the thing with his father-in-law was that, right, he was the one that was going crazy in season two, like, and kept on, like, not being able to complete the loop and always having, like, uh, glitches, right? Yep, that was right. I think that's because, he, yeah, he knew he wasn't real. I think that with the man in black, the reason that he hasn't completely and utterly lost his mind yet is because he's learning by himself that he is not real. He's coming to the consciousness himself and making his own assumption he has no hint to the fact that he is fake. He's doing it all himself and learning himself. Um, so I, I, I think, I really do think he's a host. Um, and I think, I, I don't know if that's going to make me like or dislike the character more or less, but I do think he is a host who, again, is going to become, I think, a disruption because he's going to have that own self-inclination of he realizes himself uh, that what he did and how he got to where he is and where he got his mind at. I will say I was very happy to see his daughter come back into the show as a flashback. I'm not usually a fan of those haunting flashbacks, if you will, but I think he's actually worked really effectively in this episode. Kind of a reminder to the good parts of season two, which I enjoyed their relationship and how she and how she died at his hands because he thought that she was a host when she was really human. Yeah, that part was fascinating. I, I do like what you said earlier about how like they sort of condensed the character flow here because there was a point I think like season two. I think they at one point they had like. 15 main characters, Cray, which I feel like is way too much. Now it's about like seven or eight. And like, you really can really put these people in pairs now. It's easy. You have Ciroc and Maeve. You have Bernard and Stubbs. You have Dolores and Caleb. And like, those like pairings make it easier to keep track of the story. Like who's interacting with who and like stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you wonder if this, uh, if Westworld going to take like after a true detective on HBO where season one was good. Season one was great, let's be honest. Season two was not that great, and then season three was a return to form. So it's kind of following the same formula, if you will, a little bit here. Um, again, going back to its basic roots a little bit with the storytelling and, and the writing. Um, and so, again, episode four, it was, again, very singular in the way it told its story, but it came with the biggest twist at the end, which, I mean, the thing about Westworld, Mike, is you know this, and anyone who watches the show knows this, that there's always more questions than answers. But the thing is, now the questions are interesting, 
and they're actually worth thinking about and they're not overwhelming. Yeah, they're not having these big existential questions. You're really having more simpler questions like, okay, Dolores is duplicating herself. Like, where is her fifth body going to be? Like, when did she get this idea to duplicate herself? Like, that was the question you raised by this answer as opposed to like, where is this mystical alternate reality where the hosts can live? And like, when can they gain constant? Like, those are like deeper, harder to sort of fathom questions. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see where this season is going to go. Uh, how long is this season? Like, do you know? I don't know how many episodes it is. It's only eight episodes. We're actually halfway through. So we are halfway through. So that makes sense. This is the halfway, the culminating moment. Uh, I mean, now we're on the other side of the pulley where all the all the, the things that were set, now everything's going to come collapsing to the ground to the big finale. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen. Um, I, I don't, here's, what, here's one thing I'll say. I don't think this story ends up well for Caleb. I will say this. I don't think Caleb is going to end up living at the end of the season, if I had to predict. Now, I think Marshall Lynch is a stronger chance of living through the end of the season than Caleb does. I would agree. Marshall Lynch, though, was in the, uh, the, the uh, rest of the season preview, if you will. Um, so I, I was happy to have him back as Giggles. I believe his name is Giggles yep, in the show. It's Giggles. It's just, I think it's fantastic. It's Giggles. Yeah, so I was happy to see him back. Yeah, before we move on from the Westworld, I want to ask you, as the movie guy, did you like the homages they did to Eyes Wide Shut in the scene at the uh, at the whorehouse? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely tell there was inspiration there. You get all the wealthy people in a room for a sex party for charity um, with the masks and everything like that. Definitely, and like the way, I mean, the way Stanley Kubrick made Eyes Wide Shut, too, like there's a little bit of a futuristic aspect to it, and but also combining that futuristic aspect with like, I don't know, like old Parisian architecture, like old, like not medieval architecture, but like that's the same kind of gothic kind of feel. And that's the same way they went with in Westworld. So I think there's definitely, definitely inspiration there. Um, so I, listen, you, you take inspiration from the best people and Stanley Kubrick, one of the best to ever do it instead of mood. Um, so I don't think there are any parties like that happening now in America. And if there are, like I'm not getting invited to any of those parties because I do not have enough money. Well, they also should not be happening because they're supposed to be obviously staying six feet away from each other. That's right. That's right. Self-quarantining. Even the rich and famous, the uber-rich and famous must be self-quarantining. That's absolutely right. Yeah. What's like? What's one question you you have your eye on the rest of the season? You're wanting to track. Like, what sort of storyline you try most invested in? Right? I see what's going on. How are they going to bridge the simulation world with the real world? Because I really do believe that there are two worlds mirroring each other. The one in Rehoboam trying to figure out how to solve what's happening in the real world. Then the real world, which the Lord has been wreaking havoc in. How are they going to bridge those and bring Maeve over? Do they bring Sir Rock over into the quote-unquote real world? Because right now, I think we've only ever seen him in the simulation world, if you will. So uh, how do they bridge that gap? How do they bring those two worlds together in maybe a way that is not crazy and it's just like, this isn't believable, or in a way that's too cheesy and hokey. It's a delicate line uh, to walk, and it's a delicate textbook to balance. But with the way season three has been going thus far, I'm like, I'm fairly confident that the showrunners and the writers are going to find a way, find a good way to do it. But that's what I'm most curious about. Yeah, I'm curious to see where the Ciroc angle ends. Because remember, he's talking to Maeve, and she's like talking like, oh, like you should have brought me to Paris. And he's like, well, Paris doesn't exist anymore. I'm like... Is it really like got nuked in like the twenty forties or something, or is it just the scenario where like this is just Rehoboam not figuring out how to like make the real world completely accurate? I think it, I think Paris is blown up in the real world, if you will. It, that, that's what I do think. But again, that's 
that was like that was an interesting part of the episode. That's a good point. That was kind of it wasn't talked about, it wasn't expanded on, but it was just a kind of insight into uh, like the exposition of what maybe the creation of Westworld was to get away from maybe the horrors of what was happening in the real world, and that's why Westworld and Delos was creating the Shogun world, World War II world, and stuff like that. So I do think that what happened in the real world in Turok was personally affected. All right, let's 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 pause here on Westworld. There's a lot of stuff threads in the air. We'll keep we'll definitely touch back on this again in the future. But I want to touch on another thing, as you said, all hail HBO. They are the kings of content right now. We recently watched the HBO documentary McMillions. Give me the Stanko grade on it. I very much enjoyed McMillions. Like I gave it uh, a hearty B plus, almost an A minus. Um, I really said there was not a bad episode of it. Um, the show, it was incredibly well done. It was a story I had no idea about. Did you have any idea about this, Mike, before you watched the documentary? I remember reading an article briefly about it a couple of years ago. I kind of forgot, slipped my mind. But then once I watched this thing, I saw all the pieces coming together, and all the ridiculous lengths these people were going to to try and con the uh, game, the system there. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, I, I have no idea. This is a confession, Mike. I have never played the Monopoly game at McDonald's. Uh, I can't remember the last time I had McDonald's. It's probably six or seven years. I never had it growing up. So the whole McDonald's culture and obsession is literally foreign to me because I just didn't grow up with it. My parents never got McDonald's for me as a kid. So seeing that was incredibly interesting to me and how people were like crazy for it. And it was a daily routine to go to McDonald's and to play this game. That part of me also blew me away is how big of a cultural footprint that McDonald's and the Monopoly game had at this point in history. Yeah, I love this thing. And like, who is your favorite character that they that they talked to throughout this piece? Who's the favorite your favorite interview subject? Oh, this is tough because the thing of I mean, the the showrunners of McMillian struck gold because almost every single person they interviewed was a character in itself. Like nobody was boring. Everyone had a unique look or the way they talked or the way, the way they told their stories, everyone was great. Um, I secretly think, this is not my pick, but this is an honorable, honorable mention, Mark Devereaux, the lawyer, was secretly the funniest person on the show. He had so many digs. He's just wearing his three-piece suit with the vest. And he's just like, he's just like, some people are stupid. Like, he, he talked, not down to people, but like, he knew that he was needling them a little bit. And I thought he was really funny. But the person I find most interesting in the show would be Robin Colombo. Um, because her story and being in, in like a love triangle with Jerry Colombo and Jerry Jacobson and the way she talked about every story she told is that she was never at fault. And the way she looked, it, it was like she was crazy. Like everything about her was absolutely crazy, but yet you couldn't take your eyes off her at all. Yeah, I like she was fun for sure. I have a tie for me. Like number one thing, AJ Guam, the, uh, the the guy who like basically took over as one of the main recruiters after uh, Jerry Colombo like, dies, and the quote the thing it may have may not have been a mob hit. Like he was yeah. fantastic. Like I mean, the stories he was telling and like how like dark he was with his like sense of with a sense of humor. Like he was fantastic. And of course, I think it was yeah. sh- shout out to Doug Matthews, the FBI agent who really gets the cra- case going. I mean. The fact he has the balls to show up to the McDonald's meeting in the complete gold suit just was like, I was on the floor laughing. Yeah, Doug Matthews, he, I mean, again, 
absolute documentary gold with the way he told his story. You could tell that man loved to talk. Like, he'd just never shut up. You could you could just leave the camera rolling for a day, and he would continue talking. Um, I would admit, he probably got a little bit on my nerves because, like, I think he knew that he sounded really cool. Like, I don't know. He reminded me of the kid in high school where he would, like, jump on the, the table at lunch and, like, be loud. And it'd be funny a couple times. But then after a week of him doing it straight, you're like, all right, kid, get down. You could, like, you could tone it down a little bit. You don't need to be at 100 every single time. But there were times where I loved when Matthews, like, touching on why you liked him, when he wanted to be the first one to get an arrest when they were finally bringing everybody in. Yet he could find no way to do it. He was so frustrated that he was trying to scheme any way possible to get in there and get his arrest. But he was the last one to possibly get it. Yeah, and I believe he's arresting Guam too, which is actually, actually funny. He was arresting Guam, yeah. Yeah, I I love I love Guam. I don't, I don't know. Did you follow the McMillions podcast? I did follow the McMillions podcast. I love actually the last episode where Tom Segura was uh, interviewing the host of the show. I thought that was actually a great finale to it too. People that didn't actually see that last one, it was really really good. Yeah, they start, they did one after every episode. They snuck a bonus episode in there at the end. I think that was great. I love Guam because Guam was literally just like shooting, like basically just shooting from the hip, like no no f's given to like what was going on, and like he basically is like, yeah, I did this. So what? Yeah, he was so his self confidence is super high, but also his like self realization of like, yeah, I know what I am. I know what I do. I know I did some bad things. I know I put myself in the hole, but like he's so self so self confident, he could talk about it in a way where you don't think less of it. It's like, damn, this guy's got all this confidence to talk about this openly. He's a magnet. He was he was a really really good interview. He was great. So, what before we move on to McMillions, what was the most unbelievable thing you saw in the entire piece? The most unbelievable. I mean, let's be real. Uh, is it the son, the Colombo family? I can't remember the husband and wife who were interviewed throughout the thing, uh, who eventually told who... I think, it was, um, I think it was Frank, I want to say. Yeah, but, I mean, this isn't my answer, but when their son walked in at the end of the document, at the end of the last episode and he worked in McDonald's, a completely genuine thing that the producers of the show didn't know, where they all cracked up laughing, that was a really funny moment. But the most unbelievable thing in the show... Uh, the most unbelievable thing in the show is how... The people who were taking these winning tickets, how they always just bought into it, and they never thought this is too good to be true. Um, I know that some of the people who took the tickets were in hard positions where they're paying off bills and they needed the money and stuff like that, but it's, it's like, this is too good to be true. Someone's literally handing you a $25,000 winning ticket and you're, you think that you're going to get a, get away with this shot free and that there's not going to be any connections to it? I, the people bought into it. It makes me think that everyone who was selling the tickets like Colombo or Guam or Jerry Jacobson, they were really good salesmen to get them to buy the tickets. But that blew me away with how many people took the opportunity without blinking an eye going, yeah, this, this sounds great. I'll do this. This is fine. This won't, get, this won't bite me in the butt later. Yeah, I think for me there were two things. Number one was the mob style hit that what they put on Jerry Colombo. He ends up dying from the car accident. They that like like literally was straight out of like a gangster movie. Like that was pretty nuts. And the other thing was like how like whenever they interviewed these winners, like all of them except for Gloria Brown were like so quick to like, 
just talk like, oh, yeah, I had this great story. I found the ticket in a magazine, blah, 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 blah. And none of them were suspicious at all that something funky was up with this. Well, Lori Brown's the only one who actually had a clue. Like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be talking about where I got this ticket from. Yeah, that's, you know what? That's a great point, Mike. You're right. The interviews were, um, where the FBI was doing the fake interviews to get all the information. And those were so funny because of how elaborate the stories were and how, I believe the first one they showed in the documentary, the person they were interviewing said that he immediately thought that the lady hosting him, that she liked him. And it's because she was being so nice to him and stuff like that and how she was smitten by him. And it's like, oh my God, these people are so full of themselves. They're just going to tell the story to the camera and they don't know that they're indicting themselves and, and giving themselves away. That, that is a really good point with how open so many people were with the lie. Imagine if they all went to Las Vegas, Mike, like, like they were supposed to. Imagine if they had that big party in Las Vegas with all the winners. Oh, my God. Like, they basically all be hanging themselves with, like, the rope there and tell, giving the investigators these stories. Yeah, exactly. It'd be, it'd be absolutely crazy. But th- th- those were very entertaining. Um, yeah, those were very entertaining. Those, those were eye-opening of the personalities of the people who would accept the winning tickets. Indeed. Let's let's go to some other stuff you've been keeping your eye on. The, you, the Stanko stance is a very busy keeping eye on things. I saw you went through every episode of Love is Blind. What was your take on that show? Oh, Mike, this show sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, the show is terrible. But I watched every single episode. Mike, I don't know why I did it. It was a garbage, garbage TV show. Um, I hate everything about this TV show, Mike. I hate almost everybody on it for the most part. It was so cringeworthy. I also just don't believe in the concept at all. Like, physical attraction is part of loving somebody. That is just a natural thing. Why fight that? You don't need to fight it. It's like a real thing in life. Like, it's fine to admit, like, if you don't think someone's as pretty as somebody else. It's okay. It's not rude. Um, so I didn't like the concept from the start. And then the people, how crazy are you, Mike, to propose after three days of knowing somebody? Three. Or whatever it was. It was 10 if you went all the way through with it. Mike, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. Mark, you're 24 years old, and you want to get married to Jessica who's 34? Are you serious? But when I was 24, that was the furthest thing from my mind. God, it's just, you need to have a completely different mindset to be on the show, Mike. And I could not see myself being friends with anybody on the show. Nobody. Just a complete different mindset for me at the ages that they're at. And I just, it's insane. It, it was absolutely insane show. But as you can see, Mike, I have a visceral reaction to it. So it got to me. And I'm going to tell myself I'm not going to watch seasons two and three. I'm telling myself that now. I'm telling you, and I'm telling your audience. You're not. But watching. I'm also telling you, I'm probably going to cave when the new seasons come out, and I'll hate watch it just as much as I did season one. <laughs> Draw. The right. show stinks. Carlton is the worst. Did you watch this? Did you watch Mike? I did not watch. I was asking you. So, Mike, you should watch to get a taste for how how much you can hate a person on TV. And again, I'm sure these people are very nice in real life. You know what? I, I'm not sure they wouldn't be friends with any of them, but just to go on this show and to think it would work and to leave your job to do it and to buy into it, there's no part of me that bought into this that this could be real. Zero. Yeah, so I'm guessing it's getting a it's getting a, a solid D from you, I'm guessing. I, it, I mean, the thing is, I watched all of it and I had a visceral reaction and it was just, 
I don't know. It was garbage. It was garbage TV. It, it was peak garbage TV, and I was a sucker for it, and I dove through the trash. Speaking of diving through the trash, I also saw you took a peek at Tiger King. I did take a peek at Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? I have watched one episode so far. I watched one last week because Sam said last week said, I've watched the whole thing. I said, let's talk about it. Everybody's talking about it. So what was your take on Tiger King? Uh, Tiger King was a good show. It was not great, but it was entertaining. Um, I do think the show starts off strong, peaks around, peaks around episode four and five, and then episode six and seven, I thought were the two worst episodes. So that's my take. Um, the thing about this show, Mike, is you're going to root for everybody to fail. Everybody. You want everybody. There's nobody likable in this show. Nobody. And it's hard to make a show like that, a documentary, where you're literally rooting for nobody. There's no protagonist. The only thing you're rooting for is the Tigers to be alive at the end, which isn't even a guarantee. Because Joe Exotic and everybody just completely puts Tigers to the wayside, and it's insane. Um, but again, I, I literally watched this show in one day. I, I started work one day at 8 a.m. or whatever, and I was like, I'm going to watch Tiger King today. And I just went through it. And I watched it all in one day. I just put it on the background while I was working. And it, it kept my attention. It kept me awake. It never drew me away where I was suffering in so much where I stopped working, if you will. There were some moments where I was like, well, that is strange. Um, and I would like pause for 30 seconds. But it was a good show. It was entertaining. Um, I honestly would not recommend it to people if I'm being honest with you. I would just say if you want to, sure, but I'm not saying it's a must watch by any means. Um, but the thing is, like, there's nobody to root for in this show, Mike. Nobody. Everyone is despicable. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right from what I've seen. I, from what I, I'm gonna, I see just finish this. I, I'm up on what people are talking about this, but I just think this is a case where. This is a right place, right time show where we're all stuck in our houses and like this show would not have taken off like it has if we were all living our normal lives. You are absolutely 110% correct. 110%. Yeah, because I, I talked about this with Sam last week. She said this theory, like, again, like we're all sitting in our houses. This probably would have made more attention in the summertime as people discover it slowly and they would have gotten there, but it would not have been an overnight hit like it was. No, I mean, I'm amazed with how much this took over the internet. And there, there are so many memes that you can make. Like, Carol Baskin, I'll let you, you haven't seen the episode yet, but I'll let you make your own determination. But she has become a meme juggernaut. Like, every, there are so many memes you can make with her faces and her costumes and different things she does in the show. It's a thing has become internet gold, and people are mining it for every single sense that they can get. And the thing is, it might be an infinity well because of how crazy the show is. It might. I know they're making another episode keeping like, coming out soon, apparently. So they are on... Are they? Yeah, they're supposed to get an eighth episode coming out soon on Netflix. Oh, no. All right, well, I'm going to watch that, but <laughs> okay. Yeah, I got to watch the other it's... six before I get to that one, but I'll get there. Yeah, I mean, Bill Exotic has coronavirus in prison, too. So, uh, I mean, one of those that in that Probably not, but... It's a, it's a crazy show. I mean, the amount of plot, it's like, it's the truest test of uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Like, you can't make this stuff up. You could not make up all this stuff in a, like, in a fictionized tale because this can only happen in real life. 
Yeah, I would tell people who are watching Tiger King, go watch McMillions. They get a much more fulfilling experience than Tiger King. McMillions is a much better show. Yeah. yeah. Much better show. All right. So as I'm asking everybody, like on the sh- on the pop culture segments this week, I'm sort of doing like the streaming queue, the playlist, whatever you want to call it. So what else is on the Stanko streaming queue right now? Oh, Mike, there's so much. Um, honestly, there's too much. I have watched a ton of movies. Um, I think I've added over 20 movies to my list in the past two weeks. Um, some good, some bad. Um, I've watched a bunch of TV shows. I've been on a BBC um, TV show kit. I watched Killing Eve on Hulu. I don't know if you've seen Killing Eve, but it's excellent. And then I finally watched The Bodyguard on Netflix, which was superb. Um, so that was really good. Uh, but I've just like I've been watching so many movies, um, and most of them have been pretty good. I've only had maybe three or four complete thinkers, but I do have a thinker for you. Uh, that was a very popular movie that I thought was really bad. What's that? Frozen Two. Oof. That movie was trash. It was just not good. There was like it, the story made no sense. The songs weren't that great. It looked great from a visual effect standpoint visual effects standpoint, but there was nothing. There was no magic to it. The characters were all annoying. Like, Frozen 2 was a dud. It was gross. Oh, I was so disappointed when I finally saw it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, so, in other words, an F for Frozen on the Snake grading scale. No, not an F, but, like, it, 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 I mean, for a kid movie, kids will love it, but if you're watching the movie comparing it to the first one, which is, I feel like, a little bit overrated, it just, there is no comparison at all. And I'm very happy now it was not nominated for Best Animated Feature because there's no way it should have been in that list. It, it was just not a very good animated movie whatsoever. The Secret Life of Pets 2 was a more enjoyable movie than Frozen 2. Hot take. That's, I don't think that's a hot take. I think that's a real take. But in terms of other shows I'm going to watch, um, in terms of bad reality shows, Mike, I think I'm going to take the plunge into the circle, which I think you've talked about before. Uh, yes, I will talk about this soon on the podcast. Our good friend Steve Colt, so. Yes, uh, so I, I'm going to take the plunge into the circle for a bad reality show background viewing. Uh, that's on my list. I'm probably going to catch up on a show, Bosch, on Amazon Prime, uh, which I really enjoyed the first two seasons of. Um, I have so many things on HBO uh, that I, I'm going to watch in terms of movies. And then another track reality show, but I can't call it trash because I'm going to be suckered in and probably love every second of it, is the Listen to Your Heart uh, Bachelor six-episode miniseries on ABC uh, because God knows, Mike, I love The Bachelor and Bachelorette, and this is connected to it in some way, shape, or form. So I'm going to be watching Listen to Your Heart on ABC for my Bachelor uh, my bachelor dose as well. Yeah, this is some fun picks on there. I mean, next week on this Pop culture segment. We're getting a new voice for pop culture. I'm bringing in our friend Alan Pines. He has some stuff that he's been streaming. He, I'm giving him the Pines playlist next week. He's give us some recommendations. I'm going to throw mine out there next week as well. So we're giving you some recommendations. Not going to be just Westworld next week. Well, the thing is, Mike, this is a time where if you were going to watch a show or movie, there's no reason now not to watch it. You have every opportunity to do it. In, indeed. You, like, you can't say you don't have time anymore. Yeah, you have nothing but time. So that's the thing. So the hardest thing for me, Mike, is I, I've never finished Breaking Bad. Like, I think Breaking Bad was good. It wasn't great. I'm literally in the middle of season five. 
and I still have not had the urge to go and finish it yet. Some people may think that's blasphemy on this podcast, but I still don't have a strong urge to go and finish it. And I probably should, but I don't. Yeah, that's some, that's something just about Breaking Bad. And you, you have El Camino now, too, as an option if, if you get through Breaking Bad. I mean, yeah, if I if I finish Breaking Bad, I can then knock a movie off my list with El Camino. Um, but it's, it's also very similar, the characters that Air, uh, the Air Paul's playing in Breaking Bad and Westworld Season 3, characters that are flawed personality-wise, have a bit of depression, and need to be at the behest of a very commanding and demeaning person in order to accomplish their task. They're both very, very similar. Yeah, next time that you're on here, we, we think we have this planned out for a little, little bit. Like, we're actually got some fun. We're going to let go through my Netflix DVD queue, which I've told you on several occasions that we, I have movies backed up there. I think like about 30 movies in there that I get the DVDs coming in. I'm going to start catching up on that. This Next time that John's on, we're going to go through that queue. John's going to reorder it and add stuff to it. I love that idea so much. I love that idea. Yeah, because I love it. I would like, I, I want to be like a, like a movie professor being like, all right, what types of movies do you like? All right, here are five to start with. It's like, uh, you know, those, uh, mail services where they ship you clothes where you can ship back the ones you don't like, but there's like a personal, uh, like clothes service for you would fit your style. I want to be that for movies. Come with me with the, with the type of movies that you like, and I'll give you five good recommendations, and we can go from there. I'll give you, I'll be your movie diary. Yeah, so basically what Stanko is doing for, for me, basically, is we're going to read through the queue what it is at that point when we record the podcast. He's going to reorder. He's going to add some of his his favorite choices to the to the queue, so it's to, to broaden my horizon a little bit, movie-wise. Well, my first thing you got to do is you got to finish Tiger King. We'll touch base after you finish Tiger King, so I can get all your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll finish Tiger King, and just another thought that popped in my head. We'll talk a little more movie broad strokes next time, but like, it feels like this coronavirus will be another reason for the Avatar sequel to be delayed. Yes, Avatar is going to be delayed, and James Cameron no longer can blame it on himself. He can blame it on the coronavirus. Yeah. Who's excited for Avatar? I don't Nobody. know. Like, they have four sequels in the order. Nobody really asked for more than one. But the thing is, like, I, it's crazy. And the thing is, like, there's so much special effects with that movie and editing post that you need to have people in a room doing it together. Like, and you can't have people in a room editing it. So, so I, Mike, this is a whole separate movie podcast uh, topic. But, like, the movie industry is going to change forever with this coronavirus. I think there's going to be long-lasting effects. And Avatar, James Cameron may have enough money where he made Buck the Trend, but there's going to be projects canceled. There's going to be production companies that approached in a whole different way and it's the way that we view movies and the way we get movies can't change forever I think because of this coronavirus that's a good tease for a future appearance from John Stanko but we'll wrap this one up today John thanks for hopping on before I let you go a lot of people know how to find on social media and keep up with Stanko's stance the blog, the blog at least I know the podcast has, has been a little bit MIA but the blog is cranking very much yeah the blog is cranking uh, Stanko's stance.wordpress.com you can find the links on my social media which are all at jstanko99 on Twitter, Instagram, John Stanko on Facebook. I'm public, come find me. Um, I, rant and, I rant and rave about my TV viewing and movie viewing and when I watch The Circle, I will be having episode by episode reactions of me yelling at the people on the screen. So those are always very entertaining just me venting. So Michael, appreciate letting me plug Stanko's 
Hey, and I'll throw this one out there to you. If you finish the circle by the time me and uh, our buddy Steve Colts are ready to record, you are welcome to come on that podcast as well. Oh, let's make it a tripod. Let's get the trio on there. Yeah, we'll get the conference call I would love going. that. I would love that. All right, John. I'll, I'll hop into your Yorktown party. All right, John. Thanks again. Mike, thank you. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Brian Costello, for calling in to talk about the New York Jets offseason, preview the draft a little bit. I want to thank the members of the Jets fan forum, Martino Puccio, Will Schneiderhan, and Rocky DePaula for calling in, talking about the Jets in a deep-dive conversation, as well as the great John Stanko for calling in to talk about Westworld, McMillions, whatever else is on his mind. Always fun talking to the great John Stanko. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my review of the HBO documentary, The Scheme, about the college basketball probe that the FBI ran a couple of years ago, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You also leave us some feedback and star ratings. That means a lot to this podcast. It'll help me get this podcast even better going forward. Be sure to subscribe as well. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify, all the usual suspects. Go back in the archives. Look at all our old episodes of the podcast. There's a lot out there. And I know we have nothing but time. So go ahead, check out some of our old episodes. We have a lot of great guests on of late. You can also go to my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. I'm putting up individual conversations from the episodes and the full episodes on there as well. You can also follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. You made it the end of this week's show. Tweet me at the hashtag Bernard is Bernard. You made it the end of the podcast. Again, hashtag Bernard is Bernard. It's a little lengthy, but you have 280 characters now. I should be able to get away with it. All right, next week on the podcast coming up, we're going to do the baseball beats. Can we call it in? Well, Schneiderhand, Anthony Sorbellini. We're talking about this weird plan that baseball has to do the satellite facility in Arizona, basically bring the entire league in a bubble, see how that works. Also be joined by the great Alan Pines I mentioned earlier. We're going to talk a little uh, pop culture stuff, get the Pines playlist, give you some fun stuff to stream in the meantime. Until then, I'll be a better week than tennis fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.